Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Be Good and Rewatch It, a Waypoint podcast where we take a close look at movies and television and examine their themes, craft, and relationship to our own times. Uh, this is the second part of our uh, no, multi-part the Pride and... It's the... Uh, really? It's the third part. We already said well, it's the once. Remember? Yeah. It's true. the third part. Mistakes have been made. <laughs> this is... The third part of our 1995 BBC Pride and Prejudice rewatch finale. Uh, this was all recorded of a piece with last week's episode. Uh, you know, as you hear me doing this, we're at the tail end of a very long recording session. Uh, but in Five this episode, in this episode, <laughs> we're going to be uh, briefly tackling some of your letters and, uh, you know, hearing what you have to say about the show and, and the series and some of your readings on Austin. Uh, also we should include here a content warning for this episode. Uh, this episode does, uh, deal with themes of, uh, abuse, assault, and racism. Uh, so there are some heavy topics discussed in this episode and, uh, as it relates both to Pride and Prejudice and other situations. Uh, so please bear that in mind and please enjoy our letter section. So things begin uh, falling into place pretty quickly here. Um, so fast. Le- yeah, uh, Austin, you want like this is this is kind of the, the final proposal. It's kind of the counterpart to the the scene at the parsonage. Uh, you want to take us through a little bit what unfolds here uh, as Darcy makes his return in the wake of this entire Lady Catherine yes. uh, de kerfuffle. Give me a second because I actually need to find it again and get my head right on it. Here we go. One second. All right. So, wait, no. Am I ahead of it now? Fuck. I was like looking ahead at some stuff and now I'm all thrown off. Here yeah. we go. Um, so, uh, after after the Mr. Bennett talk that goes bad, um, everyone's just kind of like around the house hanging out, doing some stuff. Um, and Bingley shows up uh, and uh, is announced, and it's like, all right, it, we're gonna go. It's a nice day out, which is like, an, which is true. And also, a thing I've thought about a lot while watching this, rewatching it, and looking at scenes is I want to go to a park real bad. I haven't been to a park oh, in yeah. like a good park or the wilderness. I know Rob, you you uh, sojourn out into the woods daily. I do on a, on a good walk, and I need to I need to get on that shit. We don't have those. Let's build some woods. Also, us. just just a wait, quick aside. Let's build some woods around us. Oh wait, mm. I mean it's possible. Anyway, Rob, <laughs> quick aside. Just quick aside. Uh, yeah, like during packs walking around Boston, I just felt beat to hell after like walking really? the city streets for miles. Oh yeah, but like it turns out, it is so night and day walking in a park on like soft dirt paths and like beds of pine needles. It really is like um, 
great on your knees. They have it pretty good in this world, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty comfortable. Burn to walk it all down. Dirt lanes. And, <laughs> yeah. I uh, see. I I will actually tell you the, the opposite, which is I put on a big fuss that night when you took us on a long walk in the city. But that is my favorite shit in the world. Let me walk yeah. in the city in any direction with no idea where I'm going. I will not stop walking. That scares me. I walk seventy blocks some days. Love it. Let's go. I'm Can, catch me at catch me at. You know, at at 10 a.m. at Central Park and then catch me again later that day, like way downtown, having walked the whole thing. Manhattan's really good for that. It's so like, good for it. Yeah, you just take is, one avenue. You just take a fucking avenue, get on Broadway, yeah. just go and like watch the, the neighborhoods change. Just get on Broadway and go. That's my other favorite Madonna song. <laughs> yeah. Um. So <laughs> they go out for a walk and this is like they pull the move that uh, Lizzie's aunt and uncle did earlier at, at Pemberley yes. where it was like – Let's all just go on a walk together. Mm, you know, we're just going to walk back here and let you two walk ahead a little bit. Um, uh, and I guess is is Kitty also a, in this walk? Kitty it's, also it's, comes Yeah, but she it's, immediately Jane, cuts off. Yeah, it's Jane Bingley at the yeah. front. And then the next uh, uh, party in the parade is Darcy and, and Elizabeth. And then all the way in the back is Kitty just right. trailing no, Kitty's, behind. Kitty's with Darcy and Elizabeth, but she's like, I want to go see Mariah Lucas. You oh, right. Right. And I there's no way. No, no way. No way. I would love to give her the credit of like having perceived like I should make myself scarce. But sadly, I don't think Kitty's at that stage of life yet. Hey, is Kitty short for something? Is it Catherine? Is she Catherine, Catherine. Bennett? Okay. Okay. Yeah, yep. I just wanted to make sure. Um, would she become Catherine if married or would she keep Kitty? I think it's up to her. I mean, it'd be, it's like Lizzie and Elizabeth. I know. Like, I'm just curious. Anyway. I mean, anyway. it would be probably Miss Catherine, whatever, but her friends call her Kitty. Right, right. That's probably true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, so uh, Kitty runs away, and uh, Lizzie and Darcy walk a little bit further, and then Darcy finally uh, finally, you know, stops and is like, "Hey, we're we're gonna have a talk." Uh, I've been pretty anxious. Uh, I'm I'm you know the stuff with your sister. I hope you know I, I give you I give her my kindness. Um, and uh, I am you know uh, sorry. I'm actually flipping this. Sorry, Elizabeth stops yeah. and is like, "Yo, uh, thank you for stepping in." Basically, yeah. I haven't had the chance to do that yet because our lives have not like lined up like this. But thank you for stepping in, and your kindness in that situation was a big deal. And no, no, my family should thank it, you. Right, but exactly. They don't know, but they don't know how involved you were, and I don't want to tell them how involved you were um, because it must have really mortified you already. Like you've already been through, you've already seen some shit, um, which is kind of ironic given that he is the one person in the world who already knew exactly what type of shit Wickham gets up to. Yeah, um, and he's like. I'm going to keep walking, actually. <laughs> like, let's not just stop and have this conversation. Um, and that's because he did all that secretly. She was not supposed to know about his involvement. Right. Right? Mm. And she is like, please, listen, I know I know, you don't blame my aunt about it. Lydia told me. Lydia was directly involved, and she's the one who told me about it. And then I needed to know more. I needed to understand why you were involved, and I needed to know, like – you know, what your motivation was there. And Darcy at that point says, all right, fucking, can we please, what is happening? What is this? What are we doing? We should drag a little bit for this. Huh? Right. Well, so he explicitly says, you are too generous to trifle with me. Like, I know you better than this. 
I, I Oh, I thought you were going to go to the What? If you will thank me, let it be for yourself alone. Yeah, Your yeah, family yeah. owes me nothing. Also that. <laughs> as much as I respect them, I believe I thought only. Yeah. He was like, he's like, I'm not doing this because of your mom or your sister. It's yeah. like. It's for you. It's for you. Yeah. Um, and then she's like. Ugh. And then he says, <laughs> don't fuck with me. I know you're too nice to fuck with me. If you still want nothing to do with me, let me know. Right. If your feelings are still what they were last April, tell me so at once. My effect, my affections and wishes are unchanged. But one word from you will silence me on the subject forever. This is it. This is like the beginning of his second proposal is like, all right, do you still hate me <laughs> like last time? Um, and she says, oh, my feelings are my feelings are I'm ashamed to remember what I said back then. My feelings are so different. In fact, Elizabeth looks Darcy in the eye. They're quite the opposite. <laughs> um, I love the stage direction here. Darcy soaks in her words and Elizabeth beams as they turn and continue walking. It's like uh, Darcy starts to smile. It's that thing of just like they are so content with having just had that brief yeah. moment of like that sigh of relief that they let themselves smile a little bit. So it's not even they let themselves smile. They can't help it, right? Yeah. They're both like, mm, like what's good? Like I'm going to do a little dance over here by myself, but I can't because it's 1813. I'm not allowed to dance in public. Unless <laughs> it's at specific events where we've all agreed to wear gloves and touch hands. And so instead I'm just going to go, hmm. <laughs> hmm. Um, and Darcy unfolds that in fact Lady Catherine did come to him and did tell him that, uh, that, that uh, she had gone to Lizzie uh, and that, in fact, in doing that, it had doubled – it made Darcy double down. Um, that, in fact, hey, I had thought that this was a dead end, but when you put up so – when Lady Catherine told me that you put up such a fight, uh, I actually was like, huh, okay. She's fine. She's okay because if you had told Lady Catherine – Oh no, I'm not gonna. If Lady, if if Darcy ever proposed to me, I would never think. I never think of marrying him. Yeah, he's the worst. Because that that's I, what she said. That's what she said in April. Yeah. Um, but I feel like is Darcy. I guess like for me, it's like okay, but Darcy, not that long ago at Pemberley, y'all hit it off and it was fine. Yeah. And it feels a lot like. I mean, if I take it honestly, then I always read this as Darcy, not being confident in his read of Lizzie at Pemberley mm -hmm. and not being confident in his own ability to have repaired that relationship. Right. Um, and being doubtful that like those those handful of good days mm -hmm. over that visit actually were genuine. Um, uh, and it's interesting that what he needed was for Lady Catherine to come back and be like, that bitch Lizzie <laughs> said that she was not going to not marry you. <laughs> and him being like, Oh, but oh. it's also kind of in line with his previous statement that he thought Jane was not actually interested in Bingley. Uh -huh. He sucks at this. Yeah, he's um, bad. And, and we have this. some letters actually about this that end up speaking towards, and we'll get there I'm sure in a, in a, in a few moments, that end up speaking to different readings of Darcy and his ability to read social situations. And like that, that it is maybe not simply, oh, he is he has not developed the skill for reading social uh, social um, cues and, and things like that, but that there's something about Darcy that, that actually makes him that way. Uh, in any case, um, <laughs> Uh, he says, I knew that you had absolutely decided – I knew that had you absolutely decided against me, you would have acknowledged it openly to Lady Catherine. Elizabeth smiles and laughs. 
Yes, you know enough of my frankness to believe me capable of that. After abusing you so abominably in your face, I could have no scruple of abusing you to all relations. In other words, like, after what I said to you directly, I would have put you on blast to everybody you know. Like, I went so hard at you directly that if anybody had spoken your name, and the the truth is, she had, right? She had spoken abominably, not abominably, but, like, had gone hard at who he was and had spoken to her sister about this at, at that point in time. Um, and so, like, kind of what unfolds here is just the two of them talking about what had happened last April and her rescinding a lot of her negative uh, reads on that situation and basically saying, like, a lot of what you said lined up, actually. A lot of what you said was true. And I, I'm still not sure how I feel about this part of this second – because for me, a lot of what he said was true in a in a material sense yeah. but was still – incredibly shitty and poorly done. Yeah. And, and you know, in the words of Mr. Knightley, badly done, Mr. Darcy. Like, there is, there is uh, a situation here where she has come around on who he is and who he is in such a way that she can see the she can read those previous actions in a in a as having come from a lighter hand or as, yeah. as the fact that they that the, the the facts that they are referencing about her family situation uh-huh. being true somehow that she's willing to let go at this point of the fact that he was kind of cruel in the delivery yeah. and that doesn't suit sit super well with me um yeah even though I know how you can end up there it's it's complicated because I think she has seen him take actions to um, repair the things that he's fucked up. Like, specifically with Bingley, you know, specifically with, you know, inserting himself and and aiding the whole Lydia uh, Wickham situation. But at the same time, I don't think in, like... So the two things... Well, okay. So the things that fueled her disapproval of the proposal at at the jump, the first one, was... One, his sl- his his involvement with Bingley in, in tearing him away from her sister, mm-hmm. which he seems to have made g- good on. Two, the whole Wickham situation, which also she seems to have come to a realization that she had a uh, a misconception of what happened. And three, who he is as a person and is like, and I guess it's the delivery, right? Is like how he delivered the proposal. So on all those things, he's made good on. Like she's seen him in at Pemberley being the good landlord or whatever and like has seen him in his element around um, his sister and things like that and has seen that his true countenance is not, you know, as abrasive as she had once thought. Yeah. And for what reasons that that um, abrasiveness have may have come are debatable like if he's like you know introverted and and is just kind of you know that's how he has a hard time communicating those sorts of things sure but i i agree that i don't like how she doubles like how she sort of rewrites not rewrites but just like how she she doesn't give herself enough credit in that moment because in that moment she was justified. Like, she didn't have all the information in front of her. And I think to say that, you know, like, at that point in time, of course, like, I had that reaction because this was the, the these were the cards I was dealing with. Like, this is this is what I knew what was on the table. But now, like, I kind of 
to have to have framed this more as not like a revision of the past, but a um uh like a new uh what's the word I'm looking for? Like a new encounter almost, if that makes sense. Like instead of revising the the past proposal and being like, oh, I shouldn't have said all those things. And I know she's kind of saying it to 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 point towards how her feelings have changed. Right. But to come to this proposal as a new encounter, as like a fresh start, mm-hmm. I think would have been would have spoken to a turn, not just a like slow rev- I don't know. Yeah. It's, I it's- will say to his credit, what Darcy's response to this is is like all right, but I fucking deserved anything you said about me. Yeah, like, that's true. I can't stop thinking about what I said with uh, without adding abhorrence to it. Like, uh, I will never forget your words. Had you never had uh, had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner, you know not how those words have tortured me. Um, and wants to kind of own up that, like, yeah. hey, I get why you thought of me that way. Uh, and I don't think this is game playing. Like, I don't think that she's like, I'm going to I'm going to be especially apologetic about that mm-hmm. so that I'm opening the door for you to be. I think she's genuine. I think she's turned these events over in her head again and again and again. Yeah. And having become someone who is who situates what had happened in this new frame genuinely understands them differently. Yeah, um, that's true. I, and I'm happy that he isn't like, yes, good. I'm glad you've apologized because that would have yeah. fucking sucked, you know? Yeah, no, he's very much like I've been selfish I've been, you know, I, previous to meeting you, was not, you know, was just a different person. I think Darcy's made a lot of change throughout this this um, novel and, and his character arc is like one of the most significant um, moments where you can point to uh, to actual change in the way that he moves about and deals with people and and cares for other people and cares for Lizzie. Um, the the Rob, you 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 are in the middle of rereading Pride and Prejudice, or have you reread yeah. this scene? Yeah. What do you make of the fact that again, like uh, we're talking a lot about the various adaptations here, but the the TV adaptation we're talking about does not include this last little bit, which is about the letter in the book. In the book, there's a bit where it's like Darcy mentions the letter and says, like, so uh. The Wickham letter? The Wickham letter. Uh, and remember, that letter is about Wickham, but it's also just in general a, about, a, a follow-up yeah. after that. As you know, uh, next steps. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's go over what we just did and uh, let's have some uh, next steps and we'll, we'll wrap back around to this. Um, <laughs> uh, he says, um, did it Did it soon make you think better of me? Did you on reading it give any credit to its contents? She explained what, effects it, uh, what effect uh, on her had been. Uh, and how gradually all her former prejudices had been removed. I knew, said he, that what I wrote must give you pain, but it was necessary. I hope you have destroyed the letter. There was one part especially, the opening of it, which I should dread your having the power of reading again. I can remember some expressions which might which might justly make you hate me. Because remember, that, that letter opens with him being like, I said it and I'll say it again. <laughs> but uh, but one thing, uh, the, let me clarify one thing on the Mr. Wickham front. And the Bingley front. And the Bing- Bingley front. Uh, but also your family sucks. <laughs> and I'll say it again. And and like um, it's interesting that that's absent from this adaptation. I'm curious what yeah. you make of that scene in general and its absence here. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. So they flip the order of the letter in this adaptation too. He leads off in the book with being like, look, I really did hate your family. Right. Just to be clear. Yeah. You're awful. 
Uh, and then he clears up the Wickham situation. So it's interesting how like the order of priority there does change how this lands. Uh, and so where, when he's saying, I wish you would not write that letter, I think it is because legitimately he does regret what he says. There's, there's a weird thing mm-hmm. happening, which I think is very honest, which is that he has realized him saying that stuff is wildly over the line. Right. Like, you do not talk that way about someone else's family. Certainly not someone who you consider a friend or someone that you love. Uh, that is, you know what I mean? Like, family can talk shit about family. Mm-hmm. But, like, as an outsider of the family, to break things down that way is egregious uh, in its impropriety. And it's also just a really nasty thing to say to someone uh, you care about. And he's, frankly, embarrassed by it. Um, and he, like, he wishes he could, he wishes he could unsay it. Cause genuinely, I think he no longer feels that way. Like he's never going to be down with some elements of the Bennett clan. Uh, I don't think he's ever, you know, he's never going to be particularly fond of like Mrs. Bennett, but I think he genuinely has sort of reined in and like checked his feelings about that family. And also he's met the gardeners. Um, right. You know, he's just, he has to give them all a, he, he genuinely has sort of tried to give them a bit more credit and show a bit more understanding and patience. I think the other part of this though, is that for, for Lizzie, that part of the letter ends up being something that she did value. It did right. open her eyes to some things that she had not fully comprehended because in like to her, that was just the static of life around Meriton. That was just who her family was. And it never occurred to her to examine it from the outside, which is, I think, why we have that great scene with her and her father when she says, You need to get ahead of the person that Lydia is turning into. And she's met once again by his sort of indifference uh, and, and lack of concern. So I think, you know, the this is the other part that maybe this adaptation doesn't get across quite or doesn't linger over quite as much. They both have reasons to regret things that like were transmitted mm-hmm. before or in that letter, but they both also badly needed to hear some things that were contained in those two really frank exchanges between them. I mean, that ends up being the cornerstone of the, the biggest exchange in this in this walk in the uh, in the book is reduced down quite a bit in in the adaptation in which in the adaptation it's Darcy says like I've been a selfish being all my life as a child I was given good principles but was left to follow them in pride and conceit and as such I might still have been but for you which is important and is is goes back to that that core idea of like hey we're bringing the best out of each other in the book that is situated inside of this question of the letter uh, in which in order to try to calm him or ease his concern uh, Lizzie says, you got to learn the way I think about the past. She says, like, it's my philosophy to think only of the, the pleasure the past has brought. Um, and he goes, uh, I can't give you credit for, for any philosophy of that kind. That is a reflection of your innocence because you were – in other words, when she thinks of the past – and thinks of all the good things of the past, she's involved in the good things of the past. She doesn't have the problem that he has, which is having made bad, painful recollections. He says, 
painful recollections will intrude when he when he recollects the when he recollects the past, which cannot, which ought not be repelled. I should feel bad about the past. I have a history of fucking up. I've been a selfish being all my life in practice, though not in principle. As a child, I was taught what, uh, what was right, but I was not t- taught to correct my temper. I was given good principles, but left to follow them in pride and conceit. Unfortunately, as an only son, for many years as an only child, I was spoiled by my parents who, uh, though good themselves, my father particularly, all that was benevolent and amiable, allowed, encouraged, and almost taught me to be selfish and overbearing, mm. to care for none beyond my own family circle, to think meanly of all the rest of the world, to wish at least to think meanly of their sense and worth compared with my own. Such I was from eight to eight and twenty. Uh, and as such, I might still have been but for you, my dearest, loveliest Elizabeth. What do I not owe you? You taught me a lesson, hard indeed at first, but most advantageous. By you, I was properly humbled. I came to you without doubt of my reception. You showed me how insufficient were all my pretensions to please a woman worthy of being pleased. Fuck yeah. What's good, Darcy? Darcy is like, I am going to own up to everything I've ever been. And I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't put me in, in my place. I was... I was raised to be prideful. I was raised to think I was better than everybody else mm-hmm. and lived that life for, for 20 years from yeah. eight until I was 28. And so, no, Lizzie, I can't think of only the nice things mm-hmm. because that is what I did for 20 years. I did only think of the past in nice things. Finally, it is time for me to own up to my selfishness. Um, and, and you know, I think then, you know, she is kind of like, you know, uh, uh, did you – have you convinced yourself that I'm that person? That like I am a woman worthy of being pleased? And he's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Damn. Okay. Um, so it's it's extremely good. I uh, think this actually calls to mind something else about this adaptation versus the original text. Again, the adaptation is dealing with pressures of time. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and the, it it is interesting to see what is left out and what is focused on. Right. Given what is left of the next seven minutes of this show, right? Like there's mm-hmm. not – they don't give – this isn't a big – this isn't a huge part of the book, but they do cut it down significantly and I'll let you continue, yeah. Rob. Well, no. I mean because one of the things that you encounter is – there are these false distinctions bet- made between what is genre versus what is literature. Yeah. And usually all that really means is what we define as literature is genre stuff that was important enough and popular enough and prestigious enough that we gave it that moniker yeah, and then we, we put it separate it from – yeah, and we separate it from any idea of it being part of a proper genre. And so there's occasionally – I think you see this less now that, uh, you know, women and non-binary folk and queer folk are represented better in like critical discourse uh, but I think there has been historically a problem where romance as a genre is heavily disdained in uh, literary crit cir- circles, right? And there's sometimes been a move to somehow accept Jane Austen's body of work, and particularly this book, yeah. from belonging to the romance genre. The, right. No, 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 I'm sorry. This is this is a comedy of manners. This is a serious story. This is literature. Uh, there is social critique. Yes. This is not this is not a romance novel. Uh, if you read the final act of this book, this is 100% a romance <laughs> novel because the thing that is cut from this adaptation, and I was really struck by it re- like rereading the section uh, in prep for this episode because uh, I'm a few chapters back uh, in, in my full uh, read-through, but what really struck me is how much of the ending of this book is 
the two lovers going over yeah. the history of their relationship and like, how did this seem to you? What happened with this exchange? What did you make of this? And this is not something like, particularly I think in maybe more Anglo-American style literature where you get the, like the Hemingway tradition of be to the point, like yeah, cut yeah, down yeah. anything that doesn't belong. The idea of lingering over characters regarding their own story seems indulgent and a waste yeah, of time. It's not naturalistic. Like the, sorry. This isn't how yeah. people are. You show them having a longing glance. Show them thinking maybe about the past, but we don't that we don't yeah. have access to their interiority, and they certainly would not open up to each other about it. They, they're not like there is not a Pride and Prejudice book club inside of Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. Goddamn it! <laughs> Which to be like also like oh yeah, if there's one thing that like newly minted couples hate to do it's discuss how their feelings for each other like changed and evolved uh, over time people definitely don't like to reflect 100%. about yeah just oh goodness no we like you never discuss when you first knew you wanted to be with someone or never whatever. no you don't do that but this book has that and i actually really like this touch where they both kind of spend like two chapters marveling at their connection and the fact that they came through all this together. God, there's that bit the where Lizzie, where you get, again, you get the little shade, shade of uh, Lady Catherine inside of Lizzie where they're talking about, about Jane and Bingley and she's like, oh, you probably, you set it off, right? You gave the permission, didn't you? And he's like, well, yeah, on the evening before I went to London, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, sets he sets up how, how he, you know, uh, basically told Bingley like, Go ahead with it. I told him, moreover, that I believe myself mistaken in supposing, as I had done, that your sister was indifferent to him, and I could easily perceive that his attachment was unabated, and I felt no doubt of their happiness together. And this is the best line. Elizabeth could not help smiling at his easy manner of directing his friend. Like, yeah, I see you. I see how you move those chess pieces on the board, Xehanort. I see what you did. (laughs) Well, and she almost calls him on it. She almost says... Oh, it must be nice to have a friend that does exactly as you tell them and forgives uh-huh. you all your officiousness. But she doesn't say it because she realizes he hasn't really – Like she, I think she observes Darcy has not yet learned to be laughed at. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And it's something it. that will mm-hmm. – Yeah. And so I think this is the, – the this adaptation cuts a lot of this out. Uh, but I think it is crucial to understanding like why Pride and Prejudice is in fact like properly situated as – belonging to the romance genre. I think the reason it transcends it is because it's lens like captures far more than just a relationship. You know, I think uh, a lot of romance genre work tend to just focus on the satisfaction of seeing a couple get together. Right. Mm -hmm. And depending like, and, and be happy and depending on what type of romance you're like, and maybe have a great sex scene. That's kind of what defines that genre. And it doesn't have a lot of time or space for considering a broad, fully realized world beyond the confines of a relationship. Whereas Austin is always concerned with that broader world and what's like and how it relates to the individual. Uh, but yeah, so it's just, it's interesting. They, they cut out a lot here. Uh, whereas in the book, there's definitely like a lot of reconsidering their shared past uh, that I think does leave you feeling a lot more confident about how, like what all of this is founded on. Uh, in ways that maybe the series doesn't completely pull off. I, like I'll, I'll draw attention here to the scene that immediately follows when Lizzie tells Jane that she and Darcy are engaged. Right. And Jane doesn't believe it and says, you know, I know how much you dislike him, uh, which indicates, man, Lizzie has been keeping a lot from Jane 
Uh, and Jane has certainly not been observing closely how uh, Lizzie's feelings have, have sort of evolved on this front. But Lizzie makes this joke. Jane says, be serious with me. And, you know, get, like sort of leans in close and gives the re- like, look, let's get real with each other. Don't bullshit me. Uh, how long have you loved him? And Lizzie <laughs> says it came on so suddenly, I, I, I don't know. And then she sort of smirks and says, I believe I must date it from my first seeing his beautiful grounds at Pemberley. And it's a funny line, but the but one problem is in this adaptation. Not no. I mean, like, the grounds are definitely impressive to Lizzie. But it is at Pemberley that she really yes. made like had like after the letter there's still a lot of questions of follow through like okay will Darcy follow through on these things like after after the letter especially with that opening like yeah. he him doubling down on you know what he thinks of her family and everything like that so i think Pemberley is actually crucial to showing Lizzie um what what a changed Darcy look or like what the interior Darcy looks like that is not all buttoned up and um you know that is like letting her in to his world and so it's not not Pemberley where she fell in love mm-hmm. they were on the grounds he was yeah. in a lake yeah, yeah 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 there is a euphemistic element of this right which is like yo looking at him in the light of Pemberley let me tell you I knew mm. I was in love. Um, <laughs> Look real nice, right? If there had been a love scene at Pemberley, she still would say it was at the it was at the grounds of Pemberley. Yeah, when I first, 100%. you know what I mean? Like yeah. that is, and there isn't uh, a sex scene there, but that is when they were at the height of. We already their said attraction. that it was sex. It's sex. Yeah, yeah, it was totally. sex. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and in the I and stand in the by that. Mm-hmm, and in the 1995 in the BBC, that's it. They like laugh at that bit. Um, and in the book, like it's not there's not a huge scene there, but it is like hey. Uh, after the laughter, she did like explain the whole situation, and including the Lydia stuff, and and including that like, hey, also he fucking did us a solid. Yeah, <laughs> let me tell you, they do that in the film, right? Yes, yeah. Yes. Yes. She's like, she did. She doesn't spell it out, but she's like, oh, Jane, if only you knew what he's done for our family. And she's like, what he's done for our family? And then it like kind of fades away, yeah, and, you, yeah, and you, you know, know, you know, she's she gave she gave her the lowdown. Mm-hmm. I do just want to say really quick again. I know, like we're we're basically yeah. we're basically there at this point. But Jennifer Ely just fucking kills it in yep. all of these scenes that we've talked about. And I think when we talk about what has what was missing in the in the um, adaptation is still supplemented by Ely's uh, and first for that matter, uh, uh, their incredible performances. So much in that proposal scene, or that whatever we want to call that second proposal scene. Um, is whatever's absent is supplemented by these furtive glances, by these little laughs, by the way that Ely moves her eyes around the scene and is contemplating, but also pulled forward by her interest. Like, especially at the very end, she moves her eyes like four times to different places below, deep in contemplation about all the stuff that we know from reading the book is in her mind, but then is pulled back up to look at him because... That is where her her focus and attention is, and like those little glances and those little those little aspects of the way they they walk and look are just so powerful and so they communicate so much about what that relationship is. And I like I love seeing them together on screen. It's like at the heart of it. Mm-hmm. Agreed. 
I um, can't help but watch this and just get a little bit frustrated at like Colin Firth's had a very good career. I enjoy seeing Colin Firth in movies. He's 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 a great actor. Um I feel like we've been cheated out of a similar filmography from, from Jennifer Ely, Ely yeah, being in leading roles. And I think that is just a lot to do with with what mainstream cinema has turned into, which is uh, there aren't a lot of great romantic comedies that are not like purely driven on like the star power of like two ridiculously attractive. Act- like I think of, I look at Jennifer Ely and I think of a lot of like, uh, you know, golden age uh, Hollywood stars. Right. Like mm-hmm. I, I look at her and I see like a Myrna Loy in, in a lot of ways, like capable of like incredible comedic instincts um, and capable of just a tremendous amount of like nuance in a performance. There are not enough roles for actors like that. Um, well, but I think it's particularly bad for women. Market for it, right? Like, it's not that the roles don't exist. It's that the roles are given to supermodel-type actresses that just, you know, have incredible yeah. amounts of star power. Um, Jennifer Ely is obviously beautiful, but, it like... The fact that she does not live up to the Hollywood standard is, like, so telling of how high that bar is that it is just, like, unattainable for 99% of the population. Yeah. And um, it's too bad because she's a, an incredible actress and I think would have had such a great film. Like, I, I would have loved to her be a household name in the way that, um, you know— other actresses of her caliber are like I. I just think she's really rad. Did you know that Ely was supposed to be Caitlin Stark, or was was Caitlin Stark in the pilot of Game of uh, Game of Thrones, <gasps> and it was recast? I mean, the I woman that. who plays Caitlin Stark is, is it really good. Really good for not reading these books or watching that show. Well, well you wouldn't know Stark, by yeah. reading it, but yeah, I would because there's an E in the name, right? It is, yeah. but it's pronounced Caitlin. I believe you. They say things. I don't know. Maybe George says otherwise. Yeah, we'll just talk to him, (laughs) Mr. George. Um, (laughs) I think we also get another scene of Mr. Bennett being frustrating, uh, just not really giving credence to the fact that, like, if Darcy is here saying that Lizzie's agreed to marry him, then Lizzie is on board with this. Yeah. Well, he's he's, yeah. just, he's like he can't believe that Lizzie would actually enter a marriage with this person. That, to his understanding, Lizzie's only like showed disdain for for and like I mean, Lizzie hasn't exactly communicated with Mister Bennett that it yeah. would be anything different. But I am curious about the book. If there's um, so now that I'm thinking about the film more, there's a point at which in the film. Uh, Lizzie actually in the scene tells Mr. Bennett what uh, Darcy did and is like, you can't tell anyone, but like to show you proof of his character, I will tell you what he did for our family. Right. Yeah. 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 Is that in the book or is that just completely? That's an extension. You're talking about, wait, to, to Jane? No, no, no. Okay. I can't remember exactly if, if she did tell Jane, but I know for a fact in the film that when she's trying to convince um, Mr. Bennett of her true affection right. and genuine feelings towards Mr. Darcy, that to show proof of his character tells him what he did for Lydia. 
And um, then Mr. Bennett is like, oh, my God, how can I ever repay him? Uh And she's like, he wouldn't want that. Like, he's like a generous, like, man and wouldn't want, you know, you to know in the first place. And then that's when Mr. Bennett says, I could not have parted with you for anyone lesser. Um, like you just, yeah, that is, that is, that is still in chapter 60, I want to, 59. Okay. Um, in which she gives her, gives Bennett the, Mr. Bennett the like, it's abstracted. It's like, yeah. he, she is just saying like, give all the assurances and talks about like how gradually she changed in, in her affection towards mm-hmm. him. Um, and then, uh, uh. But I, I guess it, she doesn't necessarily get into the Lydia stuff specifically, right? No, he does. she does. She does. Is it before this moment? Uh, to complete the favorable impression, she then oh, told him what Mr. Darcy had voluntarily done for Lydia. Right. He heard her with astonishment. This is an evening of wonders indeed. And so Darcy did everything, made up the match, gave the money, paid the fellow's debts, and got him, got him his commission. There you go. So yeah. I'm curious that this adaptation... But it leaves out something real big on this adaptation. What? Which is the last line of that of that chapter? Which is what Elizabeth had the sa- had the satisfaction of seeing her father. You're gonna fucking lose it. You're gonna lose it. So, uh, Elizabeth had the satisfaction of seeing her father taking pains to get acquainted with him, and Mr. Bennett soon assured her that he was rising uh, every hour in his esteem. Uh, that Mr. Darcy was rising. Uh-huh. I admire all of my three son son in laws highly," said he. "Wickham perhaps is my favorite, but I think I shall like your husband quite as well as quite as well as Jane's." <laughs> what is that a okay. joke? So yes, it is because Mister Mister Bennett is like is a piece of shit. Mister Bennett, no, Mister Bennett, like he loves can't Chapo, not make a joke. For instance, right? He's he's like, oh, Wickham, that dude owns. Mm-hmm. I love oh that guy. God, uh, and that's how he means it. And yeah. legitimately, yeah. like Wickham is such an extraordinary piece of shit that Bennett is like, I cannot get enough. <laughs> I can't believe that Mister Bennett is drill. <laughs> He one hundred percent. But everyone agrees not to admit that it, that we know that Mr. Bennett is drill. Right, right, right. Um, I I do love that. I do like this note though. Um, Mr. Bennett does say when he's really trying to like, re- like reassure himself that Lizzie's on board with this. He says, you know, he says, "I know you. I, I, you know, I know mm-hmm. your temperament. Let me not have the grief of seeing you unable to respect your partner in life." Oh. And I think that's the like I have some sympathy there. This is the this is the one thing that like he's kind of dreaded that like Lizzie of all people would end up in a situation like he did, uh, cor- you know, cornered in a bad relationship like he's been. Yeah, I don't care. He fucking sucks. <laughs> don't like, oh, God. I guess that okay. This is a very real thing for children of divorce mm-hmm. or children who have parents like to realize that your parents are not in love is extremely sad and um heartbreaking and to to think that your parents weren't the one for each other is like shatters all conceptions of of marriage as ultimate romance and ultimate you know soulmatehood whatever that that we've been conditioned to to regard marriage as and there's something in the way that there's something in Mr. Bennett's resignation just that just really rubs me the wrong way and even though I can I I understand what you're saying Rob and I and I hear you that like this is this is him you know wanting something better for Lizzie 
it is just always, always to the detriment, like to the, to the, like it's always against Mrs. Bennett. And I, I just want to see Mr. Bennett, he's owned up once, one time. He was like, you know, I haven't really been as present as I could have. That's too bad. All right, I'm going to go back in my study. I'm going to fuck off for a couple days and see you guys next week. Like, he just doesn't, he doesn't take any actions to, the fact that he even has a say in this is so frustrating because you've never fucking done the work to have a say here, to even push up against this. Lizzie and Jane and even Mrs. Bennett have uh, like everyone other than you has done the work to get to a place where they can make decisions for themselves. And the fact that like Lizzie, after going through this whole journey of her feelings towards Mr. Darcy and so many different realizations and so many like tumultuous emotional experiences and Mr. Bennett to be like this, the, the, the last word on it is like, you have no, I understand that you have a place because you're the patriarch in a patriarchal society, but it is so frustrating to me that, like, he could stand in the way as someone who has done nothing to engage himself with any situation, with any of his children, with his wife, with anyone. And that just, like, mm, it's like, it's like, it really, it really frustrates me. At least, like, in the, okay, there is a moment in the film during this exchange where at the end when Lizzie is telling Mr. Bennett how how much she loves um, Mr. Darcy that Mr. Bennett actually like tears up and becomes like like cries and is like emotional at the thought of you know Lizzie marrying someone that deserves her um and i i'm sure some of it is like you know like the his favorite daughter growing up and like leaving his household and like that that daily sort of uh 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 interaction with each other will will cease to exist but at least like there is like emotion there that is more than yeah. just disdain and and disregard for everyone around him and I don't know. I just I it like Mr. Bennett is one of like the most frustrating characters to me um, because he makes no change. It, like most people in this story have an arc and uh, for for the better or for the worst, like Miss Bennett kind of like retreats deeper into into her, uh, you know, her own prejudices against Mr. Darcy and the, and and doubles back on on what she said about Wickham initially because now he's um, garnered her a married daughter, um, and I just I just Mr. Bennett fucking sucks. IMO. <laughs> That's all I think. I I absolutely like fundamentally agree with that with with a lot of that reading and like respect where it is coming from. I think for me, what I have a little more sympathy for is I understand how long life can seem for people who made the wrong decisions and did not find a way to back out of them. Um, And that doesn't mean that there are better ways to handle that and worse ways to handle that. And I think Mr. Bennett, by and large, consistently chooses worse and more selfish ways to handle that, uh, to handle his disappointments. But... 
you know, I also have some sympathy for what drives that kind of selfishness and that kind of retreat. Um, and I hope I'm never in that situation where I like where I'm, where I'm facing down those kind of choices. But mm-hmm. like I've seen, I, I've seen a number of people like sort of in those late life situations, realizing that my God, I have made huge mistakes and this is like, like every waking hour is a disappointment. I mean, um, I, I get it. Like my my parents got a divorce when I was uh, fourteen, and they had been unhappy. I had never like seen them be affectionate towards each other in my life. Yeah. So like, I get it. I get what it means to. But like, at the end of the day, they were a partnership, and would do the work to to participate in all of our lives, uh, me and my brothers. And so like, that's what frustrates me is like, you can, you can be, you can be Charlotte Lucas in an unfavorable, like marriage with someone that you just, that just fucking sucks. But Charlotte finds her own happiness and still engages with Mr. Colin in a way that she, she does respect. Like she, she gives him the dignity of, of, of respecting him and, and like, acknowledges that and the way that mr bennett just tears down everyone around him is just like you're such a fucking ass like he he does nothing to to respect and acknowledge the integrity of the women around him even if the women around him are are oftentimes silly and ridiculous like i understand mrs bennett is silly and ridiculous but a lot of those are like internalized anxieties about the futures of her children that she just she just channels in the most obnoxious ways and i don't know i just i'm i'm more sympathetic to mrs bennett and the the girls than i am to mr bennett because i just i like if you don't participate then fuck off you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, if you're not going to play any sort of role in the lives of your children, who are you to have a say in who in, they marry? Or exactly. What they do. And yeah, I know yeah. that this isn't like it's not like he's going to say no. Right. Like he doesn't care. Right. I mean, that's but, the actual thing. Is like I don't think he would say no to any of it. Right. He didn't stop Lydia. He didn't like. He already all, gave his consent. Right. Exactly. Right. He mm-hmm. did already give his consent even before even before this conversation. Right. She so. She could have been like that's. I guess we don't know, right? But she could have been like, "No, I'm only doing this for the money. I'm not happy with him." Would he have rescinded his consent, which he had just already given? He didn't wait to have this conversation with Lizzie even before telling Darcy yes. Right. Right. So like, he in the film he yeah. waits, which is interesting. That's not true. In the film, it ends with this conversation, and that's it. We don't get so. Well, in the film, we don't see wait, his conversation with Darcy. The, so there's a secret American ending. The American ending is it was only for Americans. The, the final. We should watch that clip, by the way, because I hate it. Um, Which one? Whether at the fountain? Yeah, kissing and coming yeah, with fake dick names. Amazing. Yeah, they the only added Mr. Darcy for thing. <laughs> they for <laughs> real only added it for you, I'm which okay is with that. so wild. Uh huh. <laughs> I. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so uh, this is why I'm Mr. Darcy, by the way, because <laughs> every now and then I just tee one off. I'm just yeah. like, I'm just gonna make someone feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm also like Mr. Darcy because I used to want to do it way more, and now I do it way less. <laughs> no more beef on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, sick of arguing with white dudes on the internet. <laughs> 
Uh, I, I you know just a, a quick piece of context. I think where where I do have end up like why I do seem to be just a little bit more like defensive about Mr. Bennett is mm-hmm. like literally when my grandfather was eighty, I got the full story of mm-hmm. his marriage to my grandmother, and they uh-huh. were a Catholic family, and like I understood he was eighty years old, and like sixty years of that had just been like gray. Mm-hmm. And that is like I can't imagine that. Like, first of all, I would never tolerate it, right? Like, that's the other thing is mm-hmm. I think mean, a lot of us come from a place of, yes, take ownership, like have some fucking agency and yeah. like be responsible and like invest something in your life to get something out of it. You've been disappointed, fine. So does everyone, but like do something and like change your circumstances or improve things. But I do think it was eye-opening sort of in the very twilight of, like, my grandfather's life to realize all the things that had never made sense to me. All the ways that, like, he and my grandmother seemed kind of emotionally absent, shut off, Mm -hmm. um, you know, all those things. Like, 60 years is a long-ass time. I still can't fathom, uh, you know, to like, what that does. And so I look at Mr. Bennett and... I think I get a little bit more of, again, he's made bad decisions. He has handled all of this badly. Mm-hmm. But I also do have more sympathy of for what that reality probably does feel like day to day. Yeah. I don't want to know what Charlotte Lucas is like in 30 years because I bet she's miserable still. Yeah. Um, and is a lot like – I'm curious. Will she end up being a lot like Mr. Bennett in that way? Or will she force? Will she be someone who does stay involved in her children's lives? And I mean, she's the mother, so I know. I'm, but yeah, but like, or is she like Lady Catherine de Bourgh, who is like involved in Anne's life, yeah. but not in a way that you would ever say doesn't is like actually heroic know or good. who Anne is yeah, and isn't like making. Anne decisions. is her driver, like <laughs> you know what I mean, like. Anne's out back doing fucking donuts, <laughs> and she's yeah. like, "All right, so you're gonna marry this guy." Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Also, I would not be surprised at all if Mr. Collins just died of a strange wasting yeah. disease uh, <laughs> in 15 years. Uh, anyway, uh, so we get to the wedding scene. Uh, it is a cute little double wedding. Yeah, the, I don't the like this either are, for what it's worth. Is this in the book? Do they have a double wedding? No. I forget. No, fuck no. no. This is would not have a double wedding. To me. It's the 90s. This you is the 90s. Ju- you ever just want to get married next to your sister? No, I'm good. I don't have a sister, so that would be extremely weird, actually. <laughs> I could not imagine standing next to my brother and us just both being there getting married. Like, that's just so weird. That's so strange to me. This is the, I realize this that there is are, the theme. There are places yeah. where, like, people do, uh, uh, or there are, like, there are, like, conditions in which people do, like, multiple people weddings mm-hmm. and, and, like, family affairs and everything like that, but... Man, oh man, I would not want to be standing on the altar with my brother. Yeah, I'm already not a big wedding person. Uh, not at all. Like, I'll go to a wedding, mm-hmm. but like my own. Eh. And you're gonna go to the courthouse? I don't probably. Right? Like, if Ride I get a married, friends. like I, I would absolutely have like a nice reception, but yeah. not like a. Weddings cost a fortune. Weddings cost so much money, and the wedding industry is a nightmare. And is like deeply misogynistic and is also extremely like hyper. It's like all the shit you know I'm not, I don't fuck with. But what if nice flowers? I like nice flowers. You can have nice flowers any day of the week for cheap. Not yeah. for cheap, but for more affordable than wedding flowers. 
Just I would don't rather, tell them it's I a wedding. I would rather spend $15,000 on a garden than a wedding. That's a good idea. Fair. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know, but what if... No. And this is like, this is why, again, I'm like, once I have Pemberley, we're just going to have a, a wedding at Pemberley. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Secure I the mean, bag, secure Pemberley, and then I don't, I, I definitely don't want a double wedding. Yeah, I, we can agree there. Yeah. Uh, the real, the yeah, real, the, dude, like, damn true, honest, in my feeling shit is I can, then people listening to this are going to be like, you're fucking lying. But, like, I can't stand being that much of the center of attention. Yeah. At all. Yeah. And, like, it would give me real life serious panic attacks. Yeah. To do that. Yeah. Um, you're, so. like, the center. I could be the MC at a wedding. Like, I could be, I could be, the, yo, I could yo, be yo. A, a DJ at a wedding. Everyone hit the dance I could be floor. the priest. Yeah. I would love to be, like, I could you be the could best be, man. Yeah. But I couldn't, I not. Because you me. have to tie the whole thing together. Everyone is there for you. Yeah, nah. And so you have to play Can't a host to like 100, 200, nah. 300 people. Nope. You have to talk to your uncle that you haven't seen in See, years. See, like, what I want to do, I mean, this is like for real who I would be is like, I want to be the person who goes to talk to those people so that the couple doesn't need to. Right. Like I'll keep, okay, that's a trouble table. Like I'm going to go keep them entertained. They're going to have a good time tonight. Yeah. So y'all don't ever have to deal with them. Yeah. I know that neither of you like that part of the family. I'm going to go run interference. I feel like whoever is getting married at a wedding should just not be obligated to speak to anyone the also, whole time. Right. I also have a gigantic family. So both of my parents are married and are my parents divorced and remarried. Yeah. So it's like and I had like a the only time I've had all of the wings of my family together was when I graduated from college mm -hmm. we did like uh at the time my parents owned a diner and so my my mom and my stepdad owned a diner and so we like shut down the diner and brought everybody to that, that diner so and it was nice but it was like i didn't even want to do it like yeah I, you've no, like, you... I didn't walk graduation i didn't want to walk high school graduation like i yeah it's not stage fright i just fucking hate that sort of attention yeah. yeah um and but it was nice because it was just like hey all the people are here who i care about yeah in and, an environment that you know right and even there i was like i'm gonna be the person who like manages the, the uh the music and that is going to be what i do and like yeah um, so yeah, so no, no, no big, no big weddings, weddings and especially no double weddings. <laughs> Though actually maybe there's something nice about the double wedding in, in my situation, which is. Oh, you do the tandem thing you, where like, you right. cover each other's. Yeah. And like, yeah. hey, there's Bingley, twice. You as... go talk to Wickham if Wickham were there. Bingley, you right. handle Wickham. And also Wickham like... should not be there. Yeah. Oh, banned. No. God. Turn him away at the door. Yeah. Sorry. We're Turn him up. away at the gate. No, yeah. Invite him and then don't let him in. Yeah. I hope you like the trip. Make him wait in the vestibule. <laughs> God. <laughs> anyway, no, yeah. that, there was no double wedding in the book. Okay. Thank you for answering that yeah. question. Burning question I had. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We get the double wedding. We get the priests uh like blessing uh you know and it is a, a series a series of edits 
to sort of how see how various parts of the blessing appeal to the care like apply to the mm-hmm. characters we met. Um, so it opens on like you know marriage signifies unto us the mystical union of Christ and Church, and we see the shot of uh, Caroline Bingley just looking. Like she's looking into an open sewer, I think, is the like she's looks completely uh like disgusted by what is happening. Uh Colonel Fitzwilliam just looking, you know, pleasant and happy to be there like always, and Georgiana very very happy. Uh not to be entered into for carnal appetites. We get the shot of Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, and he sort of glances shamefacedly at her, uh, which is sort of calling back to that part of the book where Lizzie thinks about the backstory of their marriage. Um to be marriage is being turned into soberly. Great shot of Mary just trying, like doing a really good job of trying to look sober and serious. Um, Kitty's there as well, uh, which I guess could be her epitaph in in this book. Really, <laughs> um, duly considering the causes, we get a shot of uh, Mister and Mrs. Um, uh, Collins, right. Oh, Collins. Collins. Yeah, and uh, so you see Mr. Collins trying to look very respectable. Charlotte looks, like, very doubtful as she looks at him. Uh, And then a shot, and we get another shot of Mr. and Mrs. Gardner, um, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of symbolizing this is what marriage is ideally meant to be. They're a good couple, uh, you know, supportive of one another, care for each other deeply. Uh, Procreation of children. We see Lady Catherine and Anne. Uh, I think it's a false step. I just I think this I think this adaptation misreads Anne. I I, I really do. I think mean, I don't think Anne gives a shit. Yeah. I don't think Anne is hanging out there no. with her mom, uh, sort of you know nailing her colors to the mast and riding the ship all the way to the bottom of the sea. Yeah. Um. And then we get as a remedy against sin. A shot of an extremely <laughs> horny Lydia oh, uh, rubbing her foot on Wickham. And Wickham looking appropriately exhausted and hopeless. Um, and that's kind of the, the wedding sequence. We, we get Mrs. Mrs. Bennett and Mr. Bennett having their best interaction in the series. Um, you know, when she says three daughters married, God has been very good to us. Uh, and, you know, they can, they can rest easy that knowing that the family's provided for, and I guess they haven't completely uh, made, made a hash of their children's lives. And then there's the, uh, everyone gets into the, um, the carriages and we get the, yeah. the, the final and only kiss between Darcy and Elizabeth and uh, close up on just, again, just fantastic uh, work on Darcy's sideburns. Uh, they're, it's they're just, really good. They're it's perfect. Powerful. They're a powerful look. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then the film, you see Mr. Darcy and Jane sitting on a fountain in her nightgown. Do we need to run this? Him. Yeah, we, we need, need to, to run, run the tape. We need to run the tape. I'll link you. I have it open. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get you a link here. Oh, I'm gonna cringe so hard, but I have you. What's the last time you saw this? Recently? Uh, I mean, it's oh, like burned into my memory. Mm. I've seen this movie a gajillion times. Uh, this is time stamped. Uh, this is Pride and Prejudice ending 2005 HD on YouTube. Give it to me. 345. Me uh, 345 is the timestamp here. Uh, and this is, again, coming right off of the Mr. Bennett conversation. Uh-huh. We so, don't get the wedding in yeah, this. Yeah, there is no, there is no wedding. Okay, got it. Oh God! Let look alone a at look at Pemberley. Yeah, I love in the, the white night. house. What are, <laughs> the what? White house. <laughs> oh Jesus! 
All right, let's come in. Oh, uh, we need uh, audio, Kato. Kato. It's just muted right now. There we go. All right, ready? Okay. Three, yeah. two, one, go. Swans. Mm-hmm. Ah. Oh. Do those mean sex also? Well, the way he's How dressed means sex. Very well. Only I wish you would not call me my dear. Why? Because it's what my father always calls my mother when he's cross about something. What endearments am I allowed? Well, let me think. Lizzie for every day. My pearl for Sundays. And goddess divine. But only on very special occasions. <laughs> what shall I call you when I'm cross? Mrs. Darcy. No. 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 You may only call me Mrs. Darcy when you are completely and perfectly and incandescently. incandescently. <laughs> oh, Thank okay. you, Natalie. Thanks, Natalie. And how are you this evening? Mrs. Darcy. Mrs. Darcy. Yes. Yes. Oh, the forehead. Oh. Yes. forehead. Mrs. Darcy. Mrs. Darcy. Give it to me every time with a kiss. Kissing the ear, kissing the cheek, kissing the nose. Just Face eat that kisses nose up. everywhere. Chin. Love it. Love it. Mm, here for it. Final one. You got. You had to do it Go to in, him. Put the, put the thumb on the chin. Tease it. And a kiss. And the, the strings swell. <laughs> Natalie's clapping. I'm just... You're in it. So how does the international version end? The Bennett scene. What's the Bennett what? scene? The Mr. Bennett scene. That's, That's it. it. The fucking end. Mr. That Bennett sucks. looks out. It sucks. That sucks. I don't love that ending. No, TBH, that TBH. sucks. Yeah. And I think it says a lot. That I just, it's very funny to me that they were like, Americans will not fuck with that. Let how you doing, Natalie? Wipe the tears out of my <laughs> eyes. From that beautiful declaration of love, without even saying it. Do you do you still like that scene? <laughs> do I still no, like, like that genuinely, scene? Ge- like, genuinely, like genuinely, it's like, crazy. Trying fuck. not to be. <laughs> yeah, genuinely, I like now the way that I view the 2005 version is like it's f- it's fun to watch. Mm-hmm. It's fun to watch. That is like. It, uh, I don't know if it tells me a lot about the novel. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, I like Kira Knightley as an actress a lot. So I think that's like also my draw to her is she's just that skinny white bitch who could fuck me up anytime. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm here for it mm-hmm. anytime. And honestly, I think that the drama and like heightened emotion and all those kinds of things are just so over the top. Like it, it just, it's not, it's not the best adaptation of the book is what I will concede. But do I, will I watch it? Yes. Because I think it's delicious trash. (laughs) So. And it ends on a good forehead smooch. It does. Well, no, it ends on a good lip smooch, but it it builds up to it with a great forehead smooch, which smooches just dance. The, the way that the 
film builds tension is just so palpable. It's really a credit to the to the filmmaking uh, there. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, for what it's worth, I I'm not a huge fan of the way the 2000 or the 1995 series ends either because yeah. I miss a lot of what the end of the book is. So like, which would be boring in a movie. I don't think that's. I don't true. know that it would. Rob, I think I think a scene of Darcy sort of getting over himself and like them speaking, us getting a glimpse of how they will be as a couple yeah. now that all the uncertainty is cleared up. Cleared up. I think that could be really cute. And sweet, like to see, because we see him loosen up at Pemberley, but at that point she's fully on her guard and is. You got to end on like, I don't know. I just like, that's such like a ho-hum end that I would love for lore reasons, (laughs) but (laughs) I really didn't mean to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love just for the backstory and to see these two characters just like talk to each other. Like, like you said, how... How regular people, like, oh, when did you first fall in love with me? I've asked my boyfriend that a thousand times. I ask him every single day. And he never tells me. And he, like, the thing is, I, I would, I would, I would like that. I just don't know how you end on that note and, like, feel the drama of, like, the fiend. End yeah. scene. I know. Well, so I don't need, I don't think you need that because that's not, we've had this conversation uh, uh, you said it best that Jane Austen is not about fate or destiny. This is true. But it's about circumstance. This is true. Um, and so for me, a return to circumstance is important. And so the two things that the book does, one is chapter 60, we get more Lizzie Darcy, Lizzie being like, so tell me how you fell in love with me. When did you know? And it's really good uh, because it includes uh, it includes him like admitting like, yeah, I came and I was it was supposed to be about your sister, but like really I wanted to see you and like see how I felt and like um, and uh, just like a, a list of all the times he had admired her, mm-hmm. the ways in which you know she was noble and just in contrast to other people, the ways in which that you know she that that she was sick of again, I've said this again and again throughout this like yeah. the two of them are a kind in looking at the the organization of the world and the ways in which they're supposed to put up facades yeah. and and be civil and be deferent. And he is like, you were immediately like, yo, fuck all that. Yeah. Um and I mean I'm not I would not say no to someone just telling me all the points at which they were obsessed with me. That right. Well, great. And I think that that is, I think that the nickname scene in 2005 is like that. It's supposed to be that, but like it's condensed because like here are all the ways I want to refer to you. Um, but mm-hmm. what we, the other thing that we get, one is we don't get, there's a letter that uh, Lizzie sends to Mrs. Gardner that I think is fantastic. And you could imagine an ending scene on that in okay. which she says, uh, oh, right, right, right. I would have I thanked you before, this. my dear aunt, as I've done as I have done for your long, kind, satisfactory detail of particulars. But to say the truth, I was too cross to write. Uh, you supposed more than really existed about her and Darcy. Mm-hmm. But now, suppose as much as you choose, give a loose rein to your fancy, indulge your imagination in every possible flight which the subject will afford, and unless you believe me, uh, uh, sorry, and unless you you believe me uh, uh, actually married, 
uh, you cannot greatly err. You must write again very soon and praise him a great deal more than you did in your last. I thank you again and again for not going to the lakes. How could I be so silly as to wish it? Your idea of the ponies is delightful. We will go round the park every day. I am the happiest creature in the world. Perhaps other people have said so before, uh, but not with such justice. I am happier even than Jane. She only smiles. I laugh. Uh, Mr. Darcy sends you all the love in the world that he can spare, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the final thing that we don't get is Mr. Wickham being like, so um, can I get some more money, please? And this For Lydia. To li- right, via Lydia, right? And that epilogue, the epilogue of like, what are the circumstances of the people in the end yeah. is so important for me because – it, the book doesn't close, right? Like, right. and then they have to live in this world still, right? Right. We have to live in the world in which, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Wickham is going to continue to impose on them. We're going to live in the world in which, um, you know, Elizabeth gets to become friends with Georgiana, right? We're going to live in the world in which uh, the Gardeners and now the Darcys are actually close friends and live in close proximity. And we can start to see the rebuttal to Lady Catherine. In which what Lady Catherine says is like, yeah, but who are your aunts? Who are your uncles? Who is your relation? And the answer is the gardeners are my aunts and uncles. Me and Georgiana are going to be such close friends that it's not going to matter who my other sisters are. Mm-hmm. Like, and I want that rebuttal to be in the in the needs to be in the text because it. I don't want to end the, this particular relationship on that open ended like, oh, but does it work out? Like, I want I want that yeah. I want that assurance, but I want that assurance not through. Um, great demonstration of romantic affection. Right. But through a demonstration of the day-to-day. Right, right. A demonstration of what the random Wednesday looks totally. like. Totally. You know? Um, because great passion is what got everyone into this mess to fucking begin with yeah. in a lot of ways, right? Like, Wickham could call Lizzie so many great names. You know that, that he has that skill in his belt, right? Like, the, that motherfucker could make anyone feel good about themselves. Mm-hmm. And what separates him from Darcy is that Darcy actually wants to do well on the yeah. people that he that he actually, yeah. you know, that he actually genuinely admires. Yeah. I don't know that Wickham admires anyone but himself, so. I think the best end is definitely the book end is the best end. Rob, there was something else in the epilogue you wanted to touch on, right? Uh, or am I wrong? Oh I, gosh. Wrong. I mean, I think you co- no, you covered a fair bit of it. I think like it does a good job here of laying out uh here is what is going like here how here's how they're going to navigate some of these issues uh carrying over from the action of this book, right? So like it's made clear that uh Bingley actually moves into the neighborhood of Pemberley. That's where he decides to make his estate. Uh, Jane and Lizzie are within a few hours, uh, you know, carriage ride of each other uh, so they can see each other a lot. And they sort of collectively decide that maybe it would be better if we extend an open invitation to Kitty uh, and I think Mary as well, but uh, particularly Kitty uh, to get her out of Longbourn and into sort of the semi-guardianship of maybe two more responsible uh, sets of of pseudo parents, right? That like Lizzie, Lizzie and Jane and Bingley and Darcy can be better mentors, uh, you know, guardians to Kitty than she's had at Longbourn, particularly being under the, under the influence of like Lydia. Um, so you know that's an element of this uh, navigating the uh, Wickham situation as part of it. I mean, she and gets then, the, like she gets the knockout blow against Catherine. Lady Catherine condescends to visit. 
Like Lady yeah. Catherine comes to Pemberley and that's after she sends a shitty letter. She sends them a shitty mean letter and Darcy's like, all right, fuck off, auntie. Like, you, I guess you're just not going to be in my life. And Lizzie is like, no, we should, we should figure out a way to make peace here. Also, my aunt and uncle should be here whenever they can be. Like almost as if she wants Lady Catherine to show up while these ordinary people are around. Yeah. And to see mm. – I mean it specifically says like, you know, um, uh, to see uh, in spite of the pollution in which the woods have received using the language that Lady well, Catherine did. Um, and like gets Lady Catherine to come visit. And I, we don't know about what that visit is like. But that's really yeah. good. forcing her to recognize it is is, is a big win. You yeah. Know? Huge. It's uh, – also, like Darcy genuinely likes the gardeners. Uh, there's a note yes. in Aunt Gardner's final letter that after the wedding day with Lydia, he came by and like dined with them the next night. And this was after everything That's was rules. resolved. I love Darcy. He still I'm marrying come, him. <laughs> he still comes by for dinner. And you have to imagine like the guardians have like five. The, the gardeners have like four or five kids. Yeah. So like. Here's Darcy. They just gone through all this shit, and he just sort of like crash lands there the final night in London and hangs out with them and like probably a herd of rowdy kids uh, yeah. to just kind of unwind after resolving the Lydia crisis. I mean, like it's like he genuinely likes them a lot, yeah, uh, and views them more as equals. And I think he views a great many people who are his social equals. Totally, um, I would marry Mr. Darcy. Yeah, uh, we also get this line about how. Elizabeth begins to kind of be a mentor toward Georgiana in terms of like how a woman can find liberty in a marriage and like take uh, her own initiative on things and like hell yeah the fucking rules like I'm I'm yeah. glad we get those I'm glad that again like part of why I like this is because it gives us an image of a, of Lizzie's life beyond Mister Darcy in the end yeah I'll it, go back yeah. on what I said this is the best. I think that's probably true. I made too. a mistake. And I think no, but I think the I think the nineteen ninety five fucks this up too. It doesn't fuck it up, but like it also wants the big romantic ending. It's just the, the difference between two thousand five and nineteen ninety five is in nineteen ninety five you're like a double wedding with your sister. <laughs> and in two thousand five you can be like pet making names out. and making out in yeah. front of a giant white Fountain. house. Uh-huh. Fountain. Yeah. Um, I also do like the note here that Mr. Bennett visits uh, Pemberley a fair bit, but his favorite thing to do is to show up unannounced. That sounds like uh, him. Which sounds is like him. extremely on brand for mm-hmm. Mr. Bennett. Uh, yeah, I, like I, I think the the epilogue is is really charming and lays out a good vision of what these sort of successful partnerships uh, will look like. Oh, and Caroline is made to kiss the ring. Uh, that's another thing Austin makes very clear. Um, that Caroline repays all her former incivility with interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she definitely has to, you know, give Lizzie her propers at last. Uh, Feel bad and, for Lydia. And make amends. But also, ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, she does not, like, she, like, Austin does not paint a, a happy picture no. uh, of what awaits them. And it would be probably dishonest to, to paint one. Um, but it is... Kind of shitty that there's no vision of a decent way forward for Lydia mm-hmm. uh, as as Wickham's partner. Um, all right, so that does it for the, the series, the book. We should we should hit some of these questions. Yeah, uh, we had a lot of people write in. Um, I was particularly struck. There's there's a few emails we got uh, circling around questions of of how Darcy behaves, his motivations, uh, some of the things animating uh, his his missteps uh, and awkwardness in the in the early in the early episodes. Uh, we got one from uh, 
James Matthews and Hannah Aroni from Atistic, uh, which is a neurodiverse-led media company. And I guess they're going to be talking about this series of this book uh, on a podcast focusing on topics uh, around that, the St. Elsewhere uh, podcast. Uh, anyway, they write, within, two, within maybe two minutes of Darcy's appearance at the first ball, we were ready to declare our read. Darcy, in the miniseries, if not the book, is autistic. Separately, he's also a classist, prideful ass, but so much about the way his affect goes blank in moments of intense focus, stress, or panic. So much of the way he's, he's, he's misread and the bullshit things he says to get out of dancing with new people, the way he disdains Wickham's happy manners, has a deep mistrust of almost everyone and a tense, conflicted relationship with society's norms, has trouble repairing fuck-ups, leaves scenes when he runs out of the right scripts for the situation, the way he prides himself on having eliminated the social habits that might subject him to ridicule, ridicule his mingled pride and regret when he declares that he doesn't perform for strangers. Mm. Maybe we're biased by our existing media interests, but we think there's heaps to say about pride and prejudices, autistic characters. And as Mr. Collins would put it, we say autistic characters because there are several. We think there's lots to consider about the way neurodivergent survival strategies interact with class and gender dynamics, about the almost life and death consequences of being read as socially embarrassing, naive, or inept, and about who gets to set the social rules of a space and who it's most important to please, especially when you contrast Mr. Darcy with Mr. Collins. Right. Interesting. Mm. I think it's a, I, I actually think that that helps quite a bit, having... like I, I like this read, especially if you if you think about neurodivergence uh, in plural in the story where you're mm-hmm. not just having one representative character where you represent the the truth, which is that like n- there is no such thing as one type of neurodivergency or one type of autistic person. Um, there is a breadth and, and circumstance and uh, experience and individuality all play roles into how those things come into being. And how they kind of uh, not just come into being, but how they how they are, how they affect people, yeah. and how, how you know, people who are neurodivergent are. Reading this email was really helpful to me because I think it's – I don't like – you know, this is one of those things. It's open to interpretation. I don't think there's any – like I don't think you have to declare, ah, this is mm-hmm. – you know, this is what Darcy's situation is in the book and the miniseries. Like this is open to interpretation. But I do think this reading, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. You do have to bear in mind that there is a lot in the text and in this adaptation to support this interpretation. Uh, I, I certainly feel in the book, there are a lot of places uh, where it seems even more pointed uh, when Darcy's affect sort of slips and he seems to be struggling in uh, social, social situations. Um, I like, I'm, I'm definitely going to be curious to see what, uh, to, to hear what James and Hannah mention on this other podcast. Cause I am, I'm curious to know like what other, like techniques, strategies, uh, behaviors they see on other characters uh, that sort of lead them to see other representation uh, in this series. Yeah, totally. Um, I think in the book, uh, I don't know, Georgiana in the book very clearly, I think, has certainly anxiety uh, and, social, and, and, and social anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's played down in the, in the adaptation. Uh-huh. Uh, but in the book, she's described as being like intensely uncomfortable uh, meeting Elizabeth and having everyone at Pemberley. Totally. Um, I will say really briefly too, I know that there are some folks, uh, including some neurodivergent folks, who take issue with the idea of uh, identifying 
things mm-hmm. that are perceived symptoms of neurodivergency or, or you know, uh, a number of different conditions and saying like, ah, this character is this, period, the end. Um, and so I, I think that that is uh, certainly a perspective that I want to give like credit and nod to and mention. Mm-hmm. I also want to say, and I think I said something similar in a different podcast about I don't even remember what at this point. We do so many. I don't I, I think it was probably Kingdom Hearts queer readings. Yes. Um in which I think that there is I, you will see a lot of counter arguments against something like, oh, there are there are, are autistic characters in Pride and Prejudice by literary critics who will say, No, 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 no. This is just these are just the the qualities that Jane Austen saw as attractive in men right. or something like that, uh, which one does not counter <laughs> that uh, at all. But also I want to say that like I think there is something very rec- um, important in uh, neurodivergent readers being able to read a text and be like that I see myself in this or I see parts of myself in this mm-hmm. and any attempt to like invalidate that reading does does too much service to the strength of any individual reading to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. Like texts are collaborative between author and reader and we all find meaning in these things in so many different ways. And no one ever bats an eye when you read a book and you and I go like, um, oh, wow, I read this and what I really got from it was the ways in which uh, the thing that really that really um, uh, uh, worked for me were the ways in which um, Lizzie pushed back against the social norms and you go, yeah, but the thing that worked for me was the ways in which they constrained her. And like, mm-hmm. we, oh, wow, yeah, interesting. But the second that you start talking about identity or about class or about, uh, uh, you know, neurodivergence or about, uh, you know, race or sexuality, a lot of people get very loud about yeah. what is and what is not an acceptable read. Right. And I would say if you are one of those people who in your heart you like flinch when someone makes a read of a character that doesn't match up with what your read of what their identity is, take a breath and like consider why you think some of these things are open for debate and some are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're someone who feels like you're not allowed to say, oh, I read this character as trans – uh, or I read this character as neurodivergent or, or as autistic or as, uh, you know, there's an immigrant story here that isn't maybe at the surface but is under is, – is in the subtext or whatever mm-hmm. that is. Give yourself the – the I'm, I am saying that you can give yourself permission. It's not me. It's not my permission to give. But like please right. let yourself explore these readings of the text, not because like they are – not because your read is the most valid one and everyone else is wrong, mm-hmm. but be- because texts are open and because yeah. true meaning is eternally deferred and that like the collaborative process of reading into it and finding yeah. meaning that is valuable to you and productive for you mm-hmm. is the thing that books do and that fiction does. Yeah. And it's not necessarily like self-servicing. Like no. you don't have to feel selfish or like you are, you know – putting yourself above like i think yeah what both what you and and rob have said is are are so true and so important to um to to the discourse and to um conversations around text these texts are living um the the conversation around them is is alive and changes with time yeah and um if we if we can, if Pride and Prejudice can be assigned every single year for like the past like 30 years in English classes, like those readings have changed and should change because we're in different contexts and different people, um, you know, uh, are, are, are reading them. And, and it's important that, um, 
to 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 vocalize um, where what you see in the text, um, whether it's related to you or or not, yeah. or not, yeah. yeah. As um, and and so certainly something as, as someone who is I think mostly like you know neurotypical certainly uh, I I do know that there are certain aspects of this discussion that are certainly not my lane and I don't want to yep. medicalize observations about character traits or pathologize uh, you know any decisions or actions taken in in the book uh, but I do also try to bear in mind that particularly with a work like this we talked a little bit about this uh, during the Emma podcast. Um, autistic people have been around for yep. a lot longer than a formal diagnosis has existed. Yep. Like Austin is clearly in some places around some characters writing about things that like have perhaps medical explanations. There are like people in her stories that are like coping with conditions that are not understood in their own time, but they exist. And I think this is another thing to bear in mind when when you consider like, well, is this is this a correct reading? I, I I think certainly captured in Austin's lens are a lot of things that her society of the time didn't have a language for or didn't know how to identify or or how to handle. And I think this is part of some of the stories she tells. Totally. Um. Austin, you want to re read Sarah's question? I think mean, it's, it's, it's quick. It's sure. pointed. I was disappointed, says Sarah, that you didn't delve into the Colonel Fitzwilliam slash Darcy slash Elizabeth pianoforte scene. Uh, I'd love to hear what you, th what you think Darcy is trying to express with his line, neither of us perform to strangers. Um, um, which I, I, think, I thought we did. did yeah, we not I feel about like we've scene? talked about this scene. I mean, I referenced it today um, in this podcast, but I feel like I have this scene up right now. Um, the full line or the context for it is uh, Mr. Darcy approaches um, Colonel Fitzwilliam and Elizabeth. Well, this is at the first sort of stay at Rosings um, when uh, Colonel Fitzwilliam and Darcy happen upon mm -hmm. um, Lizzie and the Collinses and um, and they're all all there. And so um, Elizabeth is saying Mr. Darcy first says, OK, fuck. Elizabeth first says, I'm like trying to figure out wow, where, I wow. should, where, I should, where I should start. Um, um, uh, basically, Elizabeth says, you know, uh, talking to Colonel Fitzwilliam and is like, you would you would be shocked to believe that uh, when I first met Mr. Darcy, we were at a ball and there are multiple ladies that did not have a partner and uh, D Darcy did not offer his hand to anyone. Um, and, um, Mr. Darcy responds and says, I fear I am ill qualified to recommend myself to strangers and says, uh, Elizabeth responds and says, why should a man of sex, uh, <laughs> uh, huh? Why should a man of what? Why should a man of sense and mm. education who has lived in the world should be ill qualified to recommend himself to strangers? And he responds like super, super self-consciously and is like, I don't have that talent of conversing easily with strangers. And Elizabeth is like, well, I don't play this fucking piano very well, but I practice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, uh, or explicitly she says, and that's because I don't practice. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. And Darcy smiles at this and is like, you're right. 
you've done better things with your time. Um, but you and I, neither of us perform to strangers. And that's when Lady Catherine was like, yo, what's going yeah. on over there? Mm-hmm. Um, what I make of this line, perform to strangers, is that neither of them puts on, neither of them does the dance, neither of them puts on the facade, neither of them um, participate or moves through society in the way that they're expected to and um, try and are very true to themselves. Or I don't, I mean, I, I don't think, I think Darcy is true to himself in the sense that he does what he's comfortable with and mm-hmm. then shies away from the things that he's uncomfortable with, like dancing with strangers or, or you know, getting set up or whatever. Um, so I think that there's sort of a recognition in each other there that they, they both try to put on, they do what's genuine to them and they, and they don't do what feels disingenuine. There's another read here too. I think you're right. That's a read that I've supported this entire time. But there uh-huh. might be another read in this particular scene that is also interesting, which is the specific line is he says, um, you've per- you're perfectly right. You've employed your time much better. No one admitted to the privilege of hearing you play the piano or, you know, I guess metaphorically of hearing you perform, mm-hmm. right? Uh, could think of anything wanting. We, neither of us, perform to strangers. She's playing the piano. She is performing for right. Darcy in this moment. And there is a degree to which you could you could maybe read it this other way, this inverted way, which is, and for those of us who are close enough to you to see you do the dance, to see you play, it, you know, uh, no one is disappointed of that. But you hold that very tightly mm-hmm. you don't you don't show you are not going to get up and dance the jig for people who are who you do not approve of at least in some way and he might be reading himself a little too graciously in this moment right right where he is like she's not she's not performing the piano in the same way that mary did at the ball no totally in which not she's, in which mary is playing the piano to show case her education and skill and and desirability as you know a potential uh, suitor or uh, to be suited, right. or whatever. Well, and and the way that Lizzie approaches you know this performance for strangers, performance in quotations, is is not engaging with what the performance means. Right. Like she she knows she sucks at the piano. Right. She is like making fun of herself. She's doing it, well, but it is like not out of not without pl- like pleasure for herself. Like she is enjoying this thing and it is not her, you know, uh, uh, making a social play in the same way right. that Mary was at the ball. Except that then she keeps playing. Lady Catherine comes over, interrupts them, and she's like, it's almost like, oh yeah, I don't, perf- I don't perform for strangers. Guess what? I'm going to keep playing shittily in front of Lady Catherine, which is both the read that you've said, mm-hmm. which is, which I agree with also to be 100% clear as yeah. we have supported this whole time is perform in the sense of like, I don't put on a face. Yeah. I'm not going to, she could recuse herself as Lady Catherine comes over and say, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't disgrace your ears with my poor play. And that would be playing, that would be performing yeah. also, right? Yeah. And instead she's like, bank, bonk, bonk, bink. <laughs> I know how pianos work. Uh, and she doesn't and, and isn't, isn't performing. And yet, is also performing because Lady Catherine has come over and said, I would like to hear you play piano and tell you you're bad at it. And she's like, all right, go for it. <laughs> deep, Which deep, is a type deep. of performance, yeah. <laughs> totally. So 
I look at this, I think Andrew writes us, and I think this is sort of answering Sarah's question a little mm-hmm. bit as to what Darcy is trying to express with that line. Andrew writes, uh, during the series over multiple podcasts, there's a lot of confusion expressed over Darcy's behavior in the first half of the series. His actions, especially at large social occasions, seem difficult to explain. I read this as him being an intense introvert. Every, for me, everything he did was painfully familiar. Every conversation feels like a trap waiting to spring, a massive faux pas waiting to happen. Even though cold detachment is a problem, it's a known and light quantity, and it feels like the preferable choice to the potential slip-up. Being curt and dismissive becomes a defense mechanism. Watching the first dance with Darcy, I felt like I was looking into a mirror. Every time I am at a social function, I would behave in all the, bad, the same bad ways as Darcy did, accounting for 200 years of change. I would speculate that most of you are extroverts, as, this, as that is largely what the job requires. That is super Did you guys untrue. have a similar... Well, I, I think this is to the point. Uh-huh. Did you guys have a similar impression, or do you have a significantly different view of Darcy's behavior? I, I've said this podcast that I relate to Darcy the most here. It is exhausting yeah. to be in public. It is exhausting to talk to people. Mm-hmm. If I had my way, none of you would ever see me in person, ever. <laughs> you, we would talk to do work... I love you all. I love you all. But my – it is – it is – I have I have a 9 a.m. meeting every morning and the thing that I drain of it – the thing that I that I hate of it most is that I have to be on yeah. and that I have to like contribute. And it is not only the morning though it is also that. Yeah. Uh, but it is also just like to uh, – PAX is – it is so nice to see fans. I am still tired from PAX which was two weeks ago at this point. And it is not God. because of the walking. I could walk forever. Yeah. It is it is and I love I love hearing from fans. It is it is and I think this is true about if if you when you read about introverts and extroverts, the thing that has always rung truest for me, and there are mm-hmm. things that are that there are ways in which I read about introverts and extroverts and I go, neither of these apply to me in any way, and this does not feel yeah. genuine. But the part of it that does and has always felt genuine to me is that there are people for whom being in a social situation gives them energy. It gives yep. them more. It recharges yeah. their batteries, yeah. so to speak. That's like the metaphor that I've seen used that I, that I think I can see in other people. Yeah. And there are those of which – for which being in those social situations is doable and you can even be a good – you know, a, someone who's witty and can come up with fun jokes and be pleasant and be – To be around, yeah. Be around, Right. But that for them, it is this like deep drain and where they recharge is by themselves and like mm-hmm. in in their own minds, quiet. Um, maybe not even quiet. Right? They can listen to music. They can even be out in social situations but be not the center of attention or not yeah. be in in uh, conversation at all times. The sort yeah. of like person who wants to like sit and listen to the music or who brings themselves out to the movie theater but by themselves and yeah. stuff like that. And I see that in Darcy a lot, yeah, 100%. And again, it's part of why I think there's so much of the like, where is Darcy the most himself? At Pemberley. Yeah. Right? And he's in his own space when he's right. in his own sphere. Um, well, go ahead. No, I was just going to say like, so I think part of what he the, – the thing that Darcy is trying to get across here is the thing that Andrew is kind of implying here, which is that with that sort of intense introversion – uh, the toll it takes to be out in public. Um, what he is trying to get across is, I see you're not like. He's being polite. He thinks she's she's fine at the piano, but that's not really the material point. He knows she does not feel confident in her skill, and he's trying to. I think I think what he's trying to say here is, for me, being natural and easy with people is like you trying to play well at that piano. Right. I do not – like my hands do not have the muscle memory 
to like follow the music. I do not have the dexterity to play the instrument. And as much as you are struggling at that piano, uh, this is how it is for me just being around people. And this is him trying to come out of his shell and try to explain a little bit and maybe back the train up and explain why he has come across poorly to her in the past and try to explain where that is coming from. Elizabeth doesn't hear it because it's a really oblique metaphor that requires a lot of knowledge of both of the characters. Um, and because she has, like, she is too busy needling Darcy uh, to, to hear it. But I do think what he's trying to bring across here is, for me, just dealing with you and, like, you know, all the Bingleys at Netherfield is a profound drain. And I don't know, I'm not good at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and her response is like, yeah, me either. Yeah. But I've put in the work to get as good at it as I can. Because that is what is expected and demanded of for me. Mm-hmm. And his response is like, yeah, damn. <laughs> yeah, true. Though, yeah. again, if you end up doing – if you if you take uh, – uh, if you look at the read that um, the first letter uh, sent in from, from James and Hannah, um, their read is an interesting addition here because mm-hmm. then there is a real difference in the, the two capabilities of these characters mm-hmm. if – uh, if we read Darcy as autistic and we don't read Lizzie or we read Lizzie as a, as a different person, maybe different in, in neurodivergence or not mm-hmm. neurodivergent in this way, nor typical in this way. Uh, in that case, there is a real difference between the two in a yeah. way that cannot be uh, overcome or equaled. That difference will not be erased by more practice. Right. 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 Which is an, an in, adds an interesting layer to this conversation. Absolutely. You know? Because then there's a, a, a sort of like – a not a deep sadness necessarily, but like when he says like, yeah, you spent your time better. It's like, ugh, like, but there was not an amount of time yeah, that he yeah. could spend to change this fact about who he is. Right. You know? Right. Um, and, and in the end, part of what I think connects the two is one, they both want to be at Pemberley and I don't just mean because it's nice there or because they want to fuck there, but because like, yeah, like we can make a life where we feel comfortable and where we recharge yeah. and where we feel at ease and we don't feel drained all the time, even when we are hosting. Mm -hmm. Um, But two also where like they have, Darcy has found someone who when times are good, he does not specifically, he does not feel like this lack, this thing that he has been perceived as a lack from him, that he does not want to dance even when there are no male partners to dance with, that he like it is a real stressor and anxiety for him to do that, mm-hmm. and that he and that it's more so because he knows that in society this is a faux pas of right. his. He has found someone who sees him and does not necessarily see that as a deep moral failing or right. something that makes him um, invalid as a potential romantic choice. Yeah, and I don't think would be personally offended if Darcy was like, "I don't feel like dancing tonight." Right. Like, right. let's just go sit and, and talk in the corner. Right, right. Like, exactly. if they're at the ball and Darcy's like, I don't want to dance, like, Elizabeth would just chill with him and, and like, do what makes them both happiest and most comfortable. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and just a quick note about the extroversion and introversion thing. Uh, I, I think in terms of, like, public-facing persona – um, I think performance almost exists outside that continue like extroverts and introverts can both be performers. It is a different thing sometimes and inhabits a different social space. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, like, like a bit like Austin, uh, I certainly consider myself an introvert, um, right. like recharging my batteries. Like I, mind you, I crave 
human contact and hanging out with people. Mm -hmm. It does. Like I do need that from time to time. But in terms of what is going to restore my batteries, it is going to be uh, being alone, being with like family and loved ones or like very limited social gatherings of like very close friends who are practically family. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's it for me. Everything else is kind of a debit on the account. And I still want it sometimes. I want to go be in a place like full of acquaintances, friends where it's noisy. I can also still like perform like, you know, on a PAX panel or something. Mm-hmm. Yes. But that isn't, that's not me as that's not me it's being not the same. sociable in my natural way. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's just, that's part of the job. That's a thing I do. Yeah. It's yeah. wild. Like I, I've said this before, but like there's two things. One, and Natalie can attest to this, that mm-hmm. like the night we went out for drinks, Rob, I was like dreading it. Yeah. Um, and in the end, I ended up having an incredible time because like Darcy and Lizzie, I recognized like, oh, I don't have to perform in the way that I expected to have to perform that night. There was a little bit of it, but like by the time we were, you know, at ease with each other, yeah. it, did, it did recharge my batteries ahead of what was a really long PAX. But I had no assurance of that, even though I know we get along because that is not how it works. Like right. it does not, it yeah. is not like, oh, my friends don't drain me. Like, no, often the people who I care about the most drain me the most because I want to do well by them and I want to be uh, at the top of my game. And it's really Mm -hmm. rare that I get to turn off that part of what the expectation of performance is. Mm -hmm. Um, And Natalie can also attest that when, when, you know, me, Natalie, Kato, Patrick got back to the hotel that night, I was like, huh, I actually had a really nice night. Yeah, totally. But the other half of that is, and I want to, I'm speaking to this just to give some extra perspective. Um, the, the person who wrote it was like, I'm sure you're all extroverts because it's assumed that like if your job is to speak into a microphone, you get th- that. You like hearing yourself talk. Which might be true. <laughs> is true. Is true. I can yeah. admit that. Yeah. Though also I don't like listening to myself. No. Nah. I like to hear myself talk, but I don't like to hear, I don't like to, I don't like to hear recordings of myself at all because I think I sound terrible. The, the thing that is like. Um, you sound great. I appreciate it. The and I have learned to say that instead of the thing I used to do when people complimented me, which was like "shut up, don't tell me that," <laughs> which is like a really hard lesson. It's like yeah, learning to accept that's hard compliment. to do. It's really hard. Um, but the other half of it is that like part of m- my introversion is you've seen me at E three, mm-hmm. um, and it's like I have a dance card that is all the way full. Because I have a million interviews to go do and a million S or uh, appointments to meet, mm. and then we're going to podcast for three hours or four hours, yeah. And then I'm going to go to Giant Bomb and socialize with people, but in this other hyper performative way that is about like running through the same conversation and the same exact like. So how's the show been for you so far? Awesome. How you doing? How's your family? The same thirteen steps that is the in some ways, despite seeming like a an uh, uh, a a practice of hyper-socialization, right. of like constant, a week of that, literally 15-hour, 16-hour days of just that. It's a routine. Yeah. And having that routine is what lets you get through the day. And yeah. it's like, okay, the only way I'm going to get through seven straight days of socialization is to follow the game plan perfectly. Yeah. Um, and I actually think you end up seeing a lot of that in Lizzie's side of it mm-hmm. or in in like the way in which the Bennets deal with socialization in general, which is like, all right, we're going to have the fucking game plan down. Here is what this party looks like. Here is what socialization looks like. And Lizzie gets through it because, in fact, while she may not perform to strangers, she knows all the dance steps to take. Mm-hmm. And it, it, in some ways, like, they're the two opposite sides of the same introversion coin, right. which is for Darcy, I'm never going to dance at all. For Lizzie, let's go through the motions. Yeah, um, I totally. think that that's interesting. 
Yeah. Um, um, I really quick will also say that I would not consider myself an extrovert. Um, <laughs> I have immense social anxiety. <laughs> not that you need social anxiety to be an introvert, but um, sometimes it comes with the package. So, um, yeah, it, it's interesting how, um, you know, us being personalities um, can sort of uh, per- just like convey that 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 uh, that you would need to be an extrovert to do this. You don't necessarily need to be an extrovert to be on a podcast or do right. those sorts of things. Yeah, there's something. Yeah, there's like you can do this if you're someone who feels like, hey, I'm not good at parties or I don't f- I don't feel comfortable like in front of a microphone right now. Don't let that alone stop you from trying mm-hmm. those things and seeing if they fit mm-hmm. who you are. Yeah. Like it turns out Darcy's a good host by yeah. the end. The yeah. gar- he hangs out with the gardeners. He brings people over. Like, yeah. And that is not because he has some secret innate power to do that. Right. Um, uh, it is because we are all of us, even those of us who are neurodivergent mm-hmm. or who, you know, I, I'm not autistic or I'm certainly not. I haven't been diagnosed with autism or, or mm-hmm. I'm not anywhere on the spectrum as far as I know. Um, but I have absolutely been diagnosed uh, with with anxiety and depression and have struggled with those my entire life. Yeah. Um, and those are things that are – I have – combated medically and have combated mm. with therapy and and have worked with uh, through other means like meditation and, and mm-hmm. other tactics. And those things have helped, but have no, you don't erase those things. No, they're no tools. Cure. They're, they're, they're management tools, yeah. right? Um, I've learned what my triggers are. I've learned what the things are that cause me that like the most um, intense and extreme versions of anxiety mm-hmm. and the ones, the things that push me deepest into uh, uh, depressive states. Um, and growing has been about managing those things. Mm-hmm. And I think if we're going to talk about Darcy in these terms or if you're listening and are like, I can never get better, mm-hmm. the answer is like better is something we need to determine in a really broad way. Like right. we can – you can have a, a you can have a life where you are aware of what your condition is and yeah. ways in which you can find joy – alongside your struggle. Right. There's no universal standard of what better yeah, is. Totally. And any uh any sort of uh anyone who tells you that is full of shit. Right. <laughs> right. Totally. And like I believe in your ability to secure the bag and get yourself for a yourself. for yourself. Totally. Which does not mean don't get help from people. Agreed. Darcy needs to listen. Uh Natalie, you wanna read this next email from Elizabeth? Well first question. Have you seen Lord of the Rings? How's your Galadriel impression? Um, She's an elf. Oh, is she with the brown hair? No. Which one's Galadriel? You know what? Let's just see how this goes. I've never finished. You just go for it. All right. Um, Elizabeth writes in and says, I grew up in a system of overt religious patriarchy, so I appreciated your analysis of Charlotte Lucas's situation and her choice to marry Mr. Collins. This was clearly empowering for her in all the ways that you mentioned, but also in the sense that she is now considered a person, in quotation, in her society. In this kind of patriarchy, single women are essentially extensions of their parents until they are married. They have no agency and nobody has to listen to them. I think this plays into Lily... Whoop. I think this plays into Liz, Liz, Lizzie. 
Lizzie. Lizzie's feelings at Pemberley. She had just been shut down by her father when she tried to tell him not to send Lydia to Brighton, and there was absolutely nothing she could do about it. She was confronting her ultimate powerlessness for perhaps the first time. When she looks out the window at Pemberley, I think she has a bit of a Gladriel with the ring moment where she realizes she could have been a queen. Beautiful and terrible as the dawn. That's her. Treacherous <laughs> as the sea. That's Gladriel. But she decides the sacrifice would have been too great, which is important because she mostly resolves those feelings before meeting Darcy again. Um, this also plays into the complexities of Lydia's character at the end. Even though Wickham is terrible, Lydia revels in her newfound power and wields it against her sisters. I don't think any of them are really good examples of how to respond to oppressive systems. They are still right. They are still rich white women in the end. But I do think Austin paints a clear picture of the ways patriarchy poisons relationships. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like. Yeah. <laughs> like I think it's a good. I think it's a good insight, right? Like there's yeah. this element of when do you matter? Um, and we talked a little bit about this as. Lizzie starting to take pleasure in this idea that she matters on the scale of uh, she would be within the notice now of Lady Catherine de Bourgh as a, you know, threat and arrival someone to take seriously. But I think more directly there is throughout this series, throughout this, throughout this book and throughout the series, this idea of um, you are not, you do not have a substance that people need to respect and take seriously until your position is established by who, who you are married to. Mm. Uh, and I think this is, I think it's a really good read on Lizzie's uh, moment at Pemberley, which I think is, can be read as a little bit ambiguous, but I think this is a very good reading on it, which is uh, not only would you be somebody in the sense that, you know, you're now a married woman and free to move about in society in some ways, mm-hmm. uh, but also that, she would have specifically been Mrs. Darcy of Pemberley uh, and therefore free to wield all the social power uh, that that implies. And coming on the heels of realizing that as much as she's indulged at home and her father gives her like the signs of like respect and regard, ultimately it's kind of a hollow vessel. Yeah. Um, I just want to say thank you for your great collateral. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I tried. Um, Corb Limey, it's the one ring. (laughs) (laughs) Oi, that's the ring over there. (laughs) I've never seen Lord of the Rings. Sorry, Uh, gamers. So, got a lot of here from (laughs) listening. (laughs) Hey, gamers, realize how fucking old you are now that, like, Mm-hmm. Natalie just hasn't seen those movies. No, it's not and because I haven't tried. I've tried watching those movies several times. My brother and my mom love those movies. I went to them with the theater, or <laughs> I went with them to the theater to see the second one or something, yeah. and I fell asleep. Mm-hmm. I just, I do you want to compare? Worse. Do you want to see the scene that we're talking about? Or do you just not even care? I'm interested. Rob, should we play the scene? Yeah, we should. Yeah, play, run the tape. Run the tape. Uh, I got you. Okay, can I do one more rendition? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Do you want the actual text? A queen, beautiful and terrible as the dawn, treacherous as the sea. That's my second pass. This is like a bit from extras. It's so good. 
<laughs> um, I'll note also in the text it's different, obviously, but in the in the adaptation. Okay. All right, I'm ready. All right. Huh? Oh, you got an ad. You got an ad. All right. Oh my God, is it Kate Blanchett? It is Kate Blanchett. Wow. Can you can you get ready? Can you? All right, ready. Three. Ready. Two. One. Click. She's approaching Frodo for the ring. Is this in the first one? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I've never made it this far. Bill, what are you doing? Lord, you would have a queen! Not dark, but beautiful and terrible as a lord! Treacherous as the sea! Stronger than the foundations of the earth! All shall not be understood! Hey, um... What's good? Can we stop now? I hated that. Yeah, it's bad. (laughs) It's really rough. That was the worst thing that's ever. Finish, let her finish. Let her finish the delivery, because she has. There's a moment of, she restrains herself. Okay. Oh yeah, you come back down now. Okay. Uh-huh. What's up? I pass the test. I will diminish and go into the west and remain Galadriel. Alone. That's good enough. We don't. That's, okay. Uh, bye bye. Right. Oh, it's it's so yeah. So I uh, that would have been hard to nail first pass without any context. Uh huh. <laughs> a little bit. Um, I don't think I could nail it now. Honestly, I don't. think Well, I, I mean, have... you don't have at, like vocal. You don't have like audio effects being like layered over you. You're telling like, me that's you, not you Kate need... Blanchett's tremendous uh-huh. acting. She prowess. has tremendous range. She does. She truly does. Um. All right, so here's a letter from Jenny. I hate that uh, scene has, so much. Sorry, just, I just, it's so frustrating. Anyway. I feel like it's its in rough. my core. It's like, it's one of those things that's like in the text, it works. Oh, yeah, uh, I'm sure. And it's a little bit different in the text, but it's just like, oh, I wish she had just said it straight. I wish, yeah, you know what I mean? Don't put the after effects. Mm. Is that what it is? You don't need it because it, it, it's a moment that like should have belonged to a stage performer. Yeah. Where just like, it's a monologue. Yeah. Where it's 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 is this a dagger I see before me? Uh, but like it goes the the other way. Uh, that's how that should be played. But anyway, um, Jenny, Jenny, with uh, kind of a sinister take yeah. on what Wickham is up to. I don't know that I buy it, but it's an interesting thought. Uh, first of all, just a note about locations. Uh, Jenny writes: I visited Lime Park, aka Pemberley, many times. It's a great place to walk, but you don't see the you don't really see the moorlands and deer park on screen, which is a shame because it is less manicured than it looks. The interior scenes were filmed at Sudbury Hall when Lizzie is looking out of the window and says. Of all this I might have been mistress, she is looking out onto a different park entirely. They use Chatsworth House in the movie, and Death Comes to Pemberley, which is not good. I don't know that it is not good. I, I would be, We should revisit that at some point. Maybe, <laughs> maybe in the, at the holiday season. Um, that'll be everyone's gift to me. We'll do Death Comes to Pemberley. Anyway, Jenny continues. Anyway, I have a question theory for you. Did Wickham choose Lydia on purpose? 
I ask this because of Lizzie's final conversation with Wickham before she goes to Derbyshire. And it's a long exchange, and it's just where Wickham begins to get the sense that Lizzie's on to his game a little bit and has come by some of this knowledge uh, by, like, talking to Darcy or people in, like, Darcy's circle. Um, and sort of the... The, the exchange sort of, uh, you know, reveals that she certainly now knows more of, of Darcy than, than she once did. And Jenny writes, after this exchange, could, Li- could Lydia be a coincidence? Does Wickham know anything about Darcy's interest in Lizzie? Because if he does, it's another opportunity to hurt Darcy. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it seems like something Wickham would do. Um, It's possible. I don't think... Lydia is <sighs> hmm Lydia is in Brighton I think uh, I don't think it's because of who Li- I don't think why would Wickham know that Darcy likes why the fuck would he know they don't talk to each other Um, but I do think that Lydia was not an accident, if that makes sense. Like, Wickham is a predator and preys on what he on what he can. Mm-hmm. And so um, if that if part of his motivation had to do with her relation, her her literal um, relations to uh, uh, as being one of the Bennets, I just. I don't know. I'm not sure. Not the sure. case that the case that Jenny makes is it's about that scene between Wickham and uh, Lizzie. Oh my which, gosh! Okay, I understand. Yeah. I had this placed in a different point yeah, in time. Yeah, yeah. So you're thinking that at this point is when Wickham starts to figure out that Darcy and uh, Elizabeth have something going on. Right. Right before gotcha. Lydia goes to Brighton and right before Lizzie goes to Pemberley. So it's that whole conversation where Colonel Forrester's there and uh yeah. The thing is, so for me it's like that's a big it's it's possible. The leap there is that I in my mind, Lizzie is not yet beaming about Darcy. If this had been a yeah. post Pemberley visit where yeah. she's really, you know, as we said before, it's it's uh, when she first laid eyes on Pemberley. Um, so gradual was her change in affection. Um, at this point, I don't know. But but I, here's what I actually think. If this was the moment, then I suspect Austin would have underscored it in this scene at which Wickham begins to believe something that may not yet exist. Um, because I think she could do that really well. Yeah, and I think that the fact that um, uh, the last the last sentence of this section is they parted at last with mutual civility and possibly a mutual desire of never meeting again. Right, like that seems to underscore the sort of motivations that, or the sort of like. Uh, um, he perspectives that each of them left each other with. Right. It is wasn't like, like uh, Elizabeth was like, I never want to see you again, but peace. Mm-hmm. Like, goodbye. And it seems like the same. If Wickham had had, had 
gains something from this interaction, I think we would have found that here. He would have said, and it would have been like... It would have been like, and Mr. Wickham with questions. Right. Or something, right, I don't right. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God. But I yeah. don't hate like, it. I, I think it's a reach. It's an interesting read. Uh, but I don't like. I'm not sold on it as probably the what the course of events here. Uh, but it's also something that I would not put past Wickham. Uh, right, as a character, have, yeah. And the fact that, like, to be fair, if Lizzie knows Darcy at all at this point and has like deepened her acquaintance with him, that probably tells Wickham a great deal. Wickham grew up with him, literally. Like Wickham probably knows Darcy. About as well as anybody in the world, which is sort of a bleak thing to consider. Yeah. But like Wickham has sort of an intimate knowledge of Darcy that few other people do. Uh, so, you know, I can I can almost see it. I just don't know that um, I actually think it's a much more reckless and ill-considered move uh, that Wickham pulls in Brighton. Um, and or at least uh, ill-considered in the like material benefit sense. And uh, I think it's just a much more... Uh, like superficial and uh, like vain uh, decision he makes in addition to being a predatory one. Uh, Austin, uh, would you mind re- reading this letter from Lupin the Third? Oh yeah, Lupin the Third here, uh, presumably robbing us as we speak. This is a distraction if I know Lupin the Third at all. While we read this mail, all of our podcast equipment is being stolen What's and replaced. The, why are you? Do you not know Lupin? No. Who's this is that? a bit. Oh my god. This is a. Bit. I'm not doing a bit. Okay. Uh, Lupin the Third is a is a, uh, a manga and anime about a great thief. Oh, gotcha. it's very good. I was thinking of Professor Lupin from Harry Potter and his third son. No, I was not. I was not <laughs> dragging that Lupin. Um, anyway, so. Lupin the Third writes in and says this podcast brought back some memories of my middle school class doing a production of Pride and Prejudice. Uh, I'm the only black male student in my class and was cast as Mr. Wickham. I was tall, built like a linebacker, and towered over my teacher and classmates at the time. Uh, My shoe size and age were the same from 10 to 15, which is such a well-written little bit. I love it so much. At no point was it ever presented to me that I was the villain. I played Mr. Wickham as if he was Morris Day in Purple Rain, who I thought was the epitome of cool. To my memory, the show was a hit. The other parents loved my Wickham and cheered loudly when it was my turn to bow. My parents were happy and said the same. Said at the same time, I was happy and sad at the same time. They explained that uh, that they loved my performance. They just didn't like like the source material. I didn't understand their reaction to the play and my part in it until I listened to this podcast. So anyway, on to my question. Many times during this podcast, it was mentioned how society in the story and in the present is set up to protect a predator like Mr. Wickham and punish the victim. Do you think that the author was trying to highlight this fact or is it just taken for granted at the time that this was the way of the world? Uh, I think one is just like it's it's fucked that you were cast as that without knowledge um, and also obviously one of these like fascinating microaggressions macro, – honestly a macroaggression that is of the sort that's hard to, to see unless you are already clued in. Um, and also I suspect that a lot of, a lot of you know, middle school uh, teachers maybe don't even think about this aspect of Mr. Wickham as being an active predator and not just a bad match. Right, um, right, like, right. I, I, I'm not saying that we're like breaking new ground here, but I know that when I was first taught Pride and Prejudice, Wickham as like abuser and predator was not part of the conversation. He was a jerk 
right? Yeah. Uh, but he was a jerk because he couldn't decide he to settle. He was too suave. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He yeah. was a ladies' man. Yeah, You know, exactly. there are ways in which even his uh, – like the Morris Day uh, analogy here is like a fairly interesting one in that mm-hmm. like there are ways in which you can frame Mr. Wickham as being the height of a certain sort – of free masculinity and like uh, sexual power, right? Um, and uh, so, so to that, like, it fucking sucks that that was that you were cast in that way, especially without your consent or choice, right? If someone who is like, yeah, I'm happy to play the villain, like, uh, despite all of the, the context here, go for it. But it sucks that you were not allowed that, and like, it breaks mm-hmm. my fucking heart to think about his parents watching that and, and like knowing what is happening on screen, the ways in which black men are vilified, specifically uh, framed as being monstrous uh, about their bodies, especially when it comes to sexuality, especially with relation to white women uh, in this country. Like it is, it is, I've had to have that conversation. Like growing up is having the conversation about the threat you were put under by being near white women. You know what I mean? Don't mm-hmm. forget about the many, many black men lynched or dragged from the back of a car because they looked at a white woman the wrong way, right? Mm-hmm. Don't forget, Miles Davis was arrested for talking to a white woman in Times Square in the 1940s, right? Like, that was not that long ago. Yeah. Um, and and it's still, like, a very real part of all of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, to the actual question, I... I read I for me I actually do read this as being a highlight of that fact. I I it is you know I know like a few minutes ago we were saying like think about the text as collaborative and like you know no final meaning but the reading that feels so honest uh it, it, I guess here's what I want to say is I want to commend Austin in her depiction of Wickham uh as a predator and at uh society's not just society but Lizzie's own her own struggle over how to confront that fact given the restrictions placed on her Mm -hmm. the way she saw society and society's respect of Wickham Mm -hmm. um, and in the end wondering after after what happens to Lydia happens wondering if she was abetting Mr. Wickham in doing that to what degree was she someone responsible for what had happened? And I don't think a lot of that makes sense in the simple like question of is this a bad match or is he a good guy? Mm-hmm. I think like the degree to which Lizzie's consternation at her own action and inaction really is powerful when you think about Wickham as a predator and and society's um, you know kind of willingness to look the other way. Mm-hmm. And also the what it means to put yourself out there as someone without power mm-hmm. and uh, come out against someone else. Um, I mean, I think of, you know, the hesitance a lot of survivors have had um, right. in not reporting, in not, um, and like understandably, like completely understandably, like straight up, uh yeah, I was there. Like it um it's like the hardest decision ever. Um and so and it, I think seeing Lizzie's seeing all the ways that this has that this is a, a difficult decision for Lizzie in her own place 
in what it means for her sisters, what it means for, um, you know, to come out at, at society. Like, how would you even deliver that? How would you how like all of the questions that are around this are really like like you said, Austin, I want to commend Austin mm-hmm. <laughs> for um, for taking a stab at at showing the struggle that someone uh, may have uh, when tasked with uh, information about someone who is a predator. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's there's like there's no. It's just it's there's like no right answers. Like mm-hmm. you do, um, especially if you're a survivor. Um, you know, there's there's you do what you you do, and that's that's it. Um, so yeah, I think that um, seeing this struggle was really important for me, and um, yeah, it just it that's what it is. It is a struggle, so. Totally. Yeah, I'll I'll just add there that I think there's a lot of decisions you can make with how you like reinterpret Austin, but I do think if you are ignoring the degrees to which her text critique the structures they are depicting, I think you're ignoring a large part of Austin. I think yes. like certainly they're there front and center in a lot of places in Emma specifically. Uh, but you know, it's interesting to think about I know that Pride and Prejudice may have been the first thing she wrote, right? Um, But it wasn't published until after Sense and Sensibility. Hmm. Um, And Sense and Sensibility is, you know, has a similar theme in that, uh, you know, there's a younger sister who falls for not quite a Wickham level abuser, but certainly certainly someone you consider a cad, uh, right? Certainly somebody who is misled into, uh, you know, a a regrettable romantic attachment and is taken advantage of. Um, and I, so I, I think this is kind of a through line in a lot of Austin's work about who is vulnerable, uh, in this society and the, in these gender norms, uh, and who is empowered and who has to bear the consequences. Um, and I think that's sort of a, a through line from beginning to end. So, uh, yeah, I think, um, when she's, when these things are depicted, they're not, they're not unintentional. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, again, back to this question of like, what does Austin write? Natalie says about about uh, uh, not conditions uh, about circumstances. Mm -hmm. She is not. She is writing about circumstances. She is she is interested in circumstances. Structure is circumstance. In in, structure shapes circumstance. Yeah, totally. So, um, so uh, Zoe Weinstein writes. Uh, I've been, I've really, really been enjoying your Austin coverage. I don't want to turn this into a book pitch, but I wanted to write in because I actually just co-wrote a book about Austin adaptations and fandom that is coming out in June. Hell yeah. It's called Congrats. Ostentatious, the What's evolving it? world of Jane Austen fans. One more Austin. time without me talking over it. Sorry. Ostentatious, the evolving world of Jane Austen fans co-written, uh, by Zoe Weinstein. Hell yeah. Shout out to uh, Zoe. Zoe writes, it's been fascinating to listen and revisit the 1995 version since writing about Lydia because at the time of writing, it was really focused on the YouTube YouTube adaptation of Pride and Prejudice called The Lizzie Bennet Diaries. I recommend it. 
In that adaptation, wow, we I missed this completely. I should have. We it would have been cool to look this up, I think, and, and compare notes. But anyway, in that adaptation, they swap around what happens to Lydia. Instead of being a disgrace to her family for living in sin, she is emotionally manipulated and abused and tricked into recording a sex tape, which Wickham then threatens hmm. to release online without her consent. Darcy ends up buying the company that owns the website Wickham has created. Lydia's story is so, so hard to modernize because of the inherent sexual and social mores of Regency England, but Lizzie Bennet Diaries at least manages to get the same feeling across. My question is, how would you modernize Lydia, given the same structure overall of Pride and Prejudice and the character interactions, plot progression, plot progression etc.? Um, this is a really hard question. Um, I think the Lizzie from what I I haven't watched it but from what I understand um you know I could see the Lizzie I could see the Lizzie Bennet Diaries doing a very good modern adaptation in this situation if if Lydia kind of there is something about being young <laughs> um there's something about being a teenager and um, speaking from experience, when you are have when you're granted access into things that seem like you are also being given power um, mm. into whether that be relationships, social circles, or whatever, um, for me, it was hanging out with older kids, right? Um, and I hung out with people that were way too old for me at the time, and. Uh, and to me, uh, as young as 14, hanging out with like 17 year olds, to me, it felt like I was powerful and that I was, uh, you know, uh, like I was being given access to, to something and I, I had agency in those situations. And to some extent I did. Um, but I was also hugely being taken advantage of and being manipulated into situations that I was not comfortable with that um, I see in this situation if Lydia sort of followed that same arc that I did mm-hmm. in in wanting access and then and then realizing she might have bit off more that she can like that this is a situation that she didn't actually know what was going to go down in and and reveal the sort of manipulation and abuse that has gone into uh, leading up to a situation like this and in, in which you, you know, um, uh, and it, what the Lizzie Bennet Diaries does of like creating a sex tape or whatever and then Wickham holding that over her. Like I could see, because there is some agency in Lydia that like is, uh, there is a motivation for her to yeah. search for access. And, um, and that leads to putting herself in a position of being, or not putting herself in a position, but she what she finds is entering a social circle of of people who are specifically Wickham ready to take advantage of her, and um, there are times where the beginnings of those types of relationships can feel advantageous, can feel like you're being granted power, can feel like, um, you know, the way that Lydia sort of smirks at her sisters and and is in like the uh, the uh, note from before of the um, when we talked about, you know, Lydia looking at her sisters and, and holding sort of the, the power of marriage above them and the status that that gives her. 
and then finding yourself to be in a much, much different situation than you thought. So um, I don't think we really get that realization in the uh, the the TV adaptation because we never get Lydia coming to terms with who Wickham really is. We have glances right. at it, but she still seems like she's reveling in, or it's just like, is is still within sort of the illusory period of of this being some sort of equal relationship. And unfortunately, I feel like she will come to understand that that is not the case. And I hope that there are people there like Lizzie and her family that can protect her. Um, but yeah, so that would be sort of like my modern. I would want Lydia to uh, to have a moment of reckoning with who Wickham really is and then to grow from like to, yeah. to like to recognize her as a survivor of a situation like that. Um, that is like the hardest part about this for me yeah. is that like the thing I want to happen fundamentally changes the text. Yeah. Fu- like completely. Yep. Yeah. And I'm not saying that uh, adaptations can absolutely do that and they should absolutely be willing mm-hmm. to do that. The harder question for me is if you were trying to make an adaptation that was true to this part of the text. Yeah. That's true to the tragedy of this situation in yeah. which Lydia, young and encouraged by her family and you know, not specifically with regard to Wickham right. in this moment, but encouraged by by the norms of the time, by her mother to find a, a suitor, by her father's indifference and distance, by the failure of her father, right. um, by all of these different things, by you know, the by Lydia's decision to or by uh, sorry, Lizzie's decision not to inform her family of what Wickham was and Lizzie's struggle, therefore, with feeling complicit. Um, that is a tragedy that is – and I'm, I, well, again, I want to be 100 percent clear that I think an adaptation that disregards this and says, no, I want a version of it that puts Lydia as agent who understands, who, who mm-hmm. learns what Wickham is and mm-hmm. t- takes action and leaves or yeah. know, confronts that – also rad, but if you're an ad- if you're trying to do an adaptation that wants to include this element of tragedy here, um, it's really hard for a billion reasons. One of which is like the age difference. Right. Uh, it's like a ten year gap in the original, and that's just at the outer edge of what's acceptable at that time. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if you imagine this version of it that's like eighteen and twenty five, or eighteen and you know, something like now, yeah, it's like yeah, this is this is legal, but there is still the social construction. Mm-hmm. I think that's already like you can start to go down that road. Mm-hmm. The other part of it that I think is actually here is my original answer to this is what I'll say is you don't have to change much. the The person who those who are preyed on mm-hmm. are still like socially ostracized. Mm-hmm. They are still mm-hmm. pushed in a situation where, like, they're not allowed to talk about their abuse uh, without being, uh, um, you know, pathologized or stigmatized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it's actually that part of it is actually I don't I don't think that the change in so, in social and sexual mores is as large as we would hope it would be. No, not she at all. still could not come forward, and even post Me Too. Yeah. There is still stigmatization on those who would report their abusers. And so for me, that's not the most difficult part. The more difficult part is to both frame Wickham as uh, as abuser and as predator and also include her as saying, I want to be with him. I don't yeah. – was it someone who wrote in, Rob? Yeah. Did I lose the, – there's a letter in here. Yeah. What? There, Did we skip it? What happened to it? Did it, we already say it and I just missed it? No, it's – I think it's in there somewhere. Um, um, but that Lydia that Lydia decides to stay with him. That Darcy's original yeah. 
Darcy's original pitch to Lydia was, we are getting out of here. And she said no. Oh, Wait, yeah, one? sorry, I did I, I did cut that because I was getting worried because we were running a bit I late. I know, but like this is an important uh, thing in this specific topic. This was topic, a good letter. Which is, which is, uh, do you want to read the letter? If you have uh, it still? Yeah, let me just pull it this up is here. In the epilogue? I can summarize this. No. This it's is, when Darcy, no, no, no. when. It's Gardner's letter. It's Gardner's it. letter. You're right. Okay. Uh, so this is from Susanna Roundtree. Uh, who writes in, you suggested writing in to suggest alternate readings, and I wanted to point out that I just finished rereading the book, and one detail that surprised me from the book is that initially, Mr. Darcy does not plan to arrange Lydia's marriage to Mr. Wickham. From Mrs. Gardner's letter to Lizzie. He saw Wickham, he being Darcy, and afterwards insisted on seeing Lydia. His first object with her, he acknowledged, had been to persuade her to quit her present disgraceful situation and return to her friends as soon as they could be prevailed on to receive her, offering his assistance as far as it would go. But he found Lydia absolutely resolved on remaining where she was. She cared for none of her friends. She wanted no help of his. She would not hear of leaving Wickham. She was sure they should be married sometime or other, and it did not signify when. Since such were her feelings, it only remained, he thought, to secure and expedite a marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, should I continue with Su uh, Susanna's gloss here on this? Because um, I think actually there's some decent Austin context here. Yeah, yeah, please continue. Uh, I was fascinated by this detail in rereading the book because obviously it's horrible if a young woman is punished for being taken advantage of by a predator by having to spend the rest of her life with him. Austin is clearly making the point that no, Lydia did have the choice to escape and she chose not to take it. The other fascinating detail in this passage is that Mr. Darcy offered his assistance to her in leaving Wickham. My reading is that it wasn't that he was going to arrange to pick her up and take her to safety as much as he was offering to provide for her financially. In Austin's next novel, Mansfield Park, another young woman, Mariah Rushworth, involves herself in social ruin by running away from her husband with another man. She doesn't marry him, and the relationship doesn't last, so at the end of the book, her rich father has set her up in a respectable seclusion in her own house in some distant rural community where nobody knows what, who she is or what she did. I assume that by offering his assistance, Mr. Darcy is trying to offer Lydia a similar deal. Uh, think about it. What if Wickham had succeeded in doing to Georgiana what he did to Lydia? What if he'd kidnapped and ruined Georgiana? There's no way Darcy would have shotgun married them. He would have gotten his sister away from that man, even if she'd been ruined. He he would have made sure she was comfortable and respected for the rest of her life. Um, interesting reading. Like it's a, it's an interesting reading, uh, and certainly the context from Mansfield Park is interesting. I think there. Here's my thing. Um. I have been in abusive relationships where people have offered me help to get out and denied them and said that I love yeah. the person I'm with and stayed. Yeah. Um, what I'm more so when I first thought about what it would mean to adapt this into a modern text, the hardest part for me is the fact that Lydia is still with Wickham at the end. Yeah. There is, um, she doesn't leave. And realizing that, you know, the fact that she made the choice to say doesn't make any difference to me um, because it well, if it does make a difference, it's the fact that it further confirms my reading of her being in a, an abusive relationship in which um, her partner has power over her and has intimidated, manipulated um, whatever way into uh, making her stay um, or making her feel like or have 
have intimidated her to the point where she's internalized that feeling and isn't even conscious of the fact that she's staying um, out of out of uh, being uh, subconsciously directed by her partner. So um, I I would be more hesitant to say that this is something, even if in Lydia's mind this is what she wanted, right. that is so easily influenced, especially at a young age, especially disconnected from her family, especially having been ostracized from her family from the jump. Like she... Not ostracized from her family, but like she's always been made to feel like by her father silly oh, yeah. and and ridiculous, and you know this is it. Just yeah, this is like the tragedy of Lydia Bennett. Is yeah. for me, my reading on it is this is a, a probably a Foucauldian reading. Uh, one of the things Foucault really Foucault is a is a is a philosopher who often talks about discipline and about uh, the ways in which societies. Uh, institutions are are used to shape the the actions we take, mm-hmm. limiting our free will. But also says that except for in very specific circumstances, um, we do still have a sort of free will, a, a sort of ways in which um, those of us who even are oppressed find our small victories. Uh, um, a, a relationship of, of two people uh, is always a, a relationship of power, but that power is rarely one of pure domination, or one person has all the power. Somebody else, the, the person who is who is uh, you know lower, still has power and, and enacts that power. And for me, what Lydia is doing is enacting some bit of power in choosing to go with Wickham. Uh, against a structure that demands she go with someone, against her father specifically, who, as you say, like puts her down as silly, not mm-hmm. like her older sisters, more like her mother, who her father constantly degrades also. Mm-hmm. And so she, the, the tragedy here is that like it is not a free and willing choice. It is absolutely – she's absolutely being manipulated by someone mm-hmm. who uh, honestly can even barely keep up the manipulation by the end of this book. Right. Um, uh, and yet has already done the damage and has already yeah. has already harmed her uh, uh, in a way that is is really serious. And so, I, again, I guess I, what I would say is that like the the adaptation, the contemporary adapter who wants to include this story, it is it is the thing. It is this mm-hmm. happens to people all the time, mm-hmm. primarily women that like uh, are. In, in relationships that are abusive and they stay in those those relationships, not out of like, I'm choosing to stay in the, I, I love this person and this is uh, an, uh, a choice I'm making with no uh, strings attached. I would make this choice in a, in a vacuum. Yep. Uh, it, it is arrived at because of pressures and constraints that that same relationship have, have put on mm-hmm. those people. Mm-hmm. And I can easily imagine someone who wants to adapt this because they want to depict a relationship like that that does not resolve happily right? because they've seen the damage that it causes or have suffered the damage that it causes yeah. and who don't want – like I, I think one of the conversations that comes up when we talk about adaptation is like um, – not just adaptation, storytelling in general is like what is the place of tragedy and what is the place of things like misogyny, misogyny racism, transphobia, homophobia, you know, um, violence against marginalized people mm-hmm. um, and – 
I absolutely think that we can have that marginalized folks can create work that that avoids those topics because we need places of respite and mm-hmm. places to relax and recover also. Uh, the sort of escapism that uh, I know reading black authors is different than, than uh, black authors who want to not engage with the questions of race, right? Um, but I also want there to be space and as a creator demand space to explore those issues directly. Um, and so – and I don't know that this is – the story is – what I'm saying is I can imagine some – an artist, a creator who's like – and I need this tragedy to remain because I have been through something similar right. and I would not demean an artist who wanted no. to produce that on the screen or in a new adaptation. Yeah. Um, and I don't think much changes. Like I think that this is still a thing that happens. I have still seen families turn from women who have gotten themselves into an abusive relationship and have, you know, uh, uh, kind of honestly like – done worse by by women than what was done by by Lydia. Mm-hmm. I know this in a very intimate and personal way that like mm-hmm. this is a thing that continues to happen today and is despicable. Mm-hmm. Um and so like yeah, like in some ways the adaptation is the page already. Yeah. And it's but also I would be really interested in the adaptation that that leans into Lydia recognizing her her circumstance yeah. especially as she gets more support from the outside and yeah. has realizes that there are options still available to her. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah. It would be really hard for me, I think personally to linger uh, yeah. in that relationship to, to have Lydia stay in that relationship and that be the end in a modern adaptation. Yeah. Um, what I'm not interested in is a version where it's like, and then Wickham gets a stern talking to, and then he goes like, I'll be a good one. Yeah. You know, right? Like, yeah, it it would be hard. It would be hard for me uh, to see. Um, so, uh, especially because so many like abusive, toxic relationships are already glorified in pop culture, and uh, like we've talked about this yeah. before, of you know the the effect that um, that toxic relationships have had or just like the the um the butterfly effect i guess of just it continuing and you get you know uh uh fucking gossip girl chuck and chuck and blair and um you know even twilight edward and bella like have like and fucking jacob or whatever his name is like they all like there's all toxic tendencies there and they're glorified and romanticized in a way that I just I'm not here for anymore. I don't like when you rewatch those those movies and those TV shows, it's impossible not to see the red flags and the warning signs and the very d- deliberate and um indiscreet acts of manipulation and abuse. And in and today, I I do see and I do understand how an artist um, could could depict these in a way that you know expresses um, their perspective and things like that. It would just be very hard for me personally to linger without resolution and without giving um, agency into uh, uh, giving agency to the survivor. So, um, although, I mean, I, I understand the value in it because not everyone gets, not everyone sees the resolution and 
uh, and that's a very scary thing and something that um, is important and should not be ignored. Yeah. So. Totally. Uh, Evie writes, just wanted to say I've been obsessed with your Pride and Prejudice episodes of Be Good and Rewatch It. It's good to know that I'm not the only person out there willing to discuss feminist and queer readings of Pride and Prejudice for hours and hours on end. You've talked a little bit, a little about Sorry, we're entering hour 30 here of... <laughs> sure. We added also, hours to today. This may be a two-parter again. Yeah, I think I'm going to put Oh, God. Okay. You're going to have to. You've... You've talked a little about characters you think could be read as queer, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on two of my favorite, my personal favorite readings that both Charlotte Lucas and Caroline Bingley are extremely, extremely queer. Charlotte's lack of fuss about marriage and general confusion at Lizzie's wanting to marry for love and apparent happiness that her husband seems entirely uninterested in her as a person is incredibly relatable as a person on the ace arrow, uh, aromantic, I, I suspect, spectrum, who feels incredibly distant from society's nigh-on obsession with romance and marriage and who wants nothing more than to mark herself permanently out of the game, as it were. As for Caroline, there is nothing more embarrassingly relatable as a queer girl than Caroline's weird obsession with Darcy and Lizzie's relationship. There's nothing quite like picking an emotionally unavailable but rich and attractive man who hates you to have a crush on because you're definitely straight, and that's what straight girls do, and then being validated in your decision when you get jealous of his relationship with a girl, despite the fact that if you thought about it at all, it's her you want to be dating, not him. With these headcanons in mind, Despite her situation being fairly pleasant from for the time period, I always finish Pride and Prejudice feeling bad for Charlotte. Whilst Caroline is seemingly free to gallivant around the country, getting overly interested, invested in everyone's love lives, and being unnecessarily rude and dramatic for the rest of her life, easily relying on her brother for financial support, Charlotte's lack of a ridiculously wealthy brother means that even though she has too little or no interest in men, she ends up having to endure not only being married to someone she feels no affection for, but said person being Mr. Collins of all people whose most positive attribute is that he's not around very much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm extremely here for all of this. Yeah. Same. I love this reading. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know if I can be that nice to Caroline. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know, this, this Caroline is such a jerk. Like she's so, rough. I, yeah, like, I, like you, like I could. We don't know much about her, so I could buy that there's kind of a uh, sort of crypto queer presentation <laughs> happening here. Uh, but at the same time, she mostly seems like a snobbish dick. Um, and yeah, like I get, like I could see that I could see an interpretation that presents Caroline that way in this particular adaptation and in the book. I'm not entirely sure that that, that I buy into it, but again, it's headcanon. It's a, it's an interesting thing to entertain. Um, Charlotte, I could easily see this actually being kind of the case. I think we touched on this when we discussed her choice, right? Like yeah. there weren't other options for people in this era. Like if you were if you were queer. Uh, you know, if you were gay or, uh, you know, asexual, yep, you still had, you still probably had to make the kind of decision Charlotte does here. Yep. Totally. Totally. Um, can I get this next one here from Elliot? It's real important. Yeah, please. Cause I've been dying to know. Yeah. This is from Elliot, uh, who says, uh, the big quote unquote sausage pastry thing they're eating at breakfast 
It's a Melton Mowbray pork pie on brand for a family from the north. I've seen this on uh, a Great British Bake Off. Is this a thing? What's a, who's Melton? I don't know him. Who's so Melton Mowbray? Town. Is this like a maggot like last time? <laughs> it, it, no, it's the town. Melton? Melton so, Mowbray? Sorry, the original email had a link. I uh, didn't preserve the formatting, so the link is gone. Okay. But there's all sorts of pork pies. I think there's a Wikipedia article that Elliot linked us to about it. various Mubri? pork pies Mubri? of Mowbray. Mowbray? Melton Mowbray. Why is it called that? That's where it's from. Legally, only pies made in that vicinity. Wow, it literally, you're that. not lying. It's under, it's a, it's a, well, okay, wait, 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 wait. It, there has applied, the Melton Mowbray Pork Pie Association has applied for protection under European protected designation of origin okay. laws. So they're in the process. Uh, oh, wait, it was granted. It was granted in 2008. With the result that yeah. only pies made, yeah, within the designated zone around Melton and using the traditional recipe, including uncured pork, are allowed to carry the Melton Mowbray name on the packaging. What is an uncured pork? Um, like breakfast sausages that you have to cook. A cured pork is like a salami. Uh, like, oh, so like the, or you could just meat slice that, like, that off and take a bite. Take it out. Right. We'd love to have a salami I'm pie so for hungry. breakfast. I'm so hungry. <laughs> Natalie, I'm so hungry. I'm so just, hungry. Just a good note And I'm here. a vegetarian. But if we keep going a little bit longer, we're not going to take a lunch break. We're going to take a dinner break and then go home. Oh, that sounds good. Let's just keep it's, going. It's, yeah. well, it's, it's like old school Austin takes lunch way too late in the daytime lunch. Yeah, true. Yeah. But in the, in the new regime, that means maybe just go home. Uh, after lunch. Uh, anyway, uh, I do like here the note that the Melton Mowbray pork pie, it has to be cooked because it is uncured meat. And so the actual like meat in the pie is like kind of grandparents because that's what cooked meat looks like. But in the series, it's this really attractive like rosy pink mm. uh, because that photographs better. Um, yeah, I don't want to see some pale it, p- meat pie. Yeah. No, thank you, don't, you. You actually don't, don't eat pink i don't eat meat uh, at all but don't give me that pale shit (laughs) damn okay all right uh holy hell it's the last email natalie you want to you want to take us out absolutely oh this is one to remember charlotte um writes in how's mr Collins, charlotte (laughs) yeah how's that going charlotte Uh, how's it going please let us know were you the one who betrayed lizzie let us know yeah in the comments below (laughs) In our in our podcast comment section that we have. That we have. Um, the forms. Yeah. Discourse.zone. Okay. Charlotte asks, it's been great to hear such an in-depth and funny, thank you, we are funny, analysis of Pride and Prejudice. All the mentions of Death Comes to Pemberley reminded me of the time I picked up a copy of an inexplicably published fanfic titled The Pursuit of Mary Bennett, where Mary marries a jewel thief, adopts Lydia's illegitimate child, and fixes the Darcy's flagging sex life. Not recommended. (laughs) So here are my questions. What would happen... She marries Lupin III, by the way. (laughs) Specifically. She doesn't. She doesn't. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Sure. But it would be great. Yeah. (laughs) So here are my questions. What would happen in the Waypoint team's post-P&P fan fiction? Or what is your favorite Austin spinoff? My fan fiction in which yeah, you've already Mr. Said this. Darcy marries Peter Parker. 
but the one from Into the, the Spider Verse, the Schlub, whatever Parker, Peter yeah. B. Parker, yeah, I think B. 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 The B stands for Bennett. <laughs> He's a it's, Bennett. He's the a, secret Bennett son. A hidden hyphen. Yeah, right. a hidden hyphen. Bennett Parker. I think it makes me less like it less. Okay. I'm being wow. Honest. Thanks. Wow. Do you have? Like, is this just your excuse to talking about death comes to Pemberley? No. Can I mean, you okay. Explain I might, what this uh, is for, for people who don't know. Okay. We've we've hinted so at P- it. PD so James. Uh-huh. PD James. PD James. It's not. It's P. It's P. Period. D. Period. Yes. It's yeah. Petey from she from King King. I almost said King of Queens. Petey from Kingdom the block. Hearts. <laughs> it's Pete. It's Mal- Maleficent's friend Pete. Anyway, Petey James. James, Phyllis the, Dorothy uh, James, Baroness James of Holland Park yes. wrote a murder mystery. This is a misnomer. There's not really much of a mystery that is solved, but she wrote a murder mystery set at Pemberley following the events of this novel called Death Comes to Pemberley. In which, spoiler, Lydia and Wickham, uh, sorry, Lydia shows up one night uh, visiting Pemberley, <laughs> screaming that Wickham has just been murdered in the woods. But actually, Wickham is fine. It was Lieutenant Denny who was done in in the woods. And I still they think begin- that they should have published it as Denny was done in. <laughs> Denny done in. <laughs> anyway, continue. Point is, it's a strange book. It's literally just what if a. Uh, like like English rural mystery happens at Pemberley with this cast of characters. They all make their cameo appearances. There's a couple original characters who are you know decently well done, uh, and then there's an adaptation made of this, uh, starring um, oh my god, it's it's the dude from the Americans, um, Matthew Reese, mm-hmm. uh, and. Austin does not much care for this. I remember uh, it being tolerable, I suppose. Yeah, I, Anna Maxwell um, Martin has is a fantastic Lizzie. I wish she could have played in her life, played a young Lizzie, because I love her. And I've said this before, I love her in Bleak House. Um, so so yeah. I still have some fondness for this. Um, yeah. Do we want to watch the trailer? Yes. Just to see a little glimpse forward into what P.D. James imagines for the future of... of Bring it up. Okay, yes, please. I'm going to link y'all. Uh, that's the wrong chat over here. Boop. Beep. Beep, boop. Bop. There's a chance that this is in German, and if it is, I'm sorry. <laughs> Rob, can you check to see if this is in German? Why, Rob's the only one? Well. No, I'm checking right now. That okay. looks like French. What? Oh, nope, it doesn't. This is French? That's f- No, it's I, in English. It's I can't in English. see okay, from good, here. Good. I can't see. The description is not in English is no. the thing that's. Yeah, can you make it big? Thank you. Make it biggie. Ready, Rob? All right. Three, three, two, one, go. Which is based on the best-selling... Uh-huh. Story story of Darcy and Elizabeth continues. What are these rambunctious children? It's a fine tradition for the master of the house to be irritable on the eve of all. Perhaps some traditions need updating. Expecting someone? No. Not really. Lady Catherine. I come straight from a cousin's bedside. I told him he needed to decide whether to live or die, and then get on with it. Lady Catherine still sucks. I could never <laughs> marry without my brother's approval. Welcome back to family, madam. Well, I would have Georgiana. sooner, but I've had social engagements to attend to. Oh, she rules. I forgot that she was in this. Jenny! 
Don't be a bloody fool! <gasps> There's horses. Thunderstorms. It is my sad duty to inform you all that death came to Pembley last night. <laughs> Yeah, that's not good. That's a rare badly done. Garrison <laughs> constables. TD, badly done. Wickham! Wickham! There's a killer out there somewhere! My only concern now is to protect Pemberley and my family. Our one suspect is yourself. I'm dying. Do you realize what is at stake here? God! If we drag deeper into the scandal, she may never find a husband. My sister's well-being and safety are of paramount importance to me now. This isn't what you want. It is bigger than you or I, or any of us. Where are they taking him? A Darcy cannot be seen in the dock. It's disgraceful. I didn't do this. Have you arrived at a verdict? Guilty. They're going to hang him. Uh, I believe you. Uh. Now make out. It was mm. the best day of my life when I met you, Wickham. Excuse? Yeah, dude. Yo! Look, she's still in the tank for this guy. Holy shit, it's that dude. The, the mystery we just watched, Austin. Which mystery uh, did last... we just watch? Uh, we watch a murder by innocence, ordeal by innocence. Oh, that's the that guy! The Wickham is that shitty pilot. You're right! So clearly, like, if you need, like, just a... Like That's upper good. crust looking dude, but who's no fucking good. Yeah. Uh huh. Wow. Wow. Anyway, that looks like I want to watch it. You should watch it. It's a lot. It looks like a lot. Who that younger actress um, that plays yeah, Georgiana, Georgiana is in so familiar things. She's in things. I can't remember. She's in something. Oh, oh God! I know what she's. Did you play her? What's she? What's she in? I'm very excited to hear this because you seem embarrassed. I am embarrassed because she's in. When I was in middle school, me and like my entire class mm-hmm. was obsessed with this British film, this British teen film called Angus Thongs and Perf and and Perfect Snogging. Yep. Um, who did she play? Oh shit! She, she played the best friend who gets with what's his name. I just watched this movie a couple weeks ago because I needed to revisit it and mm-hmm. revisit my childhood. Um, so uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson plays the hottie, and the lead girl is obsessed with him. And he has a twin brother who's way hotter than Aaron Taylor Johnson at this point in time. And her best friend gets with him and they have a great relationship. And they're just, but then she leaves her best friend for uh, uh, the cool kids. And her best friend's like, what the fuck? We were friends. And she's like, well, you're being kind of an asshole. And to be fair, she was being an asshole. And then at the end, uh, she was like, "Uh, I won't spoil it. It's great. (laughs) Oh, is it great? It's great. Great. Uh, I I know her from also ordeal by innocence. Ordeal by innocence. Uh huh. Yep. In Weird. the same so thing. In the like same thing. Some wow. casting overlap. Yeah. That's uh, on funny. Those two projects. Yeah. Anyway. Um. Ordeal by innocence is real good. If you didn't hear us talk about that, it was on an episode of Waypoints fairly recently. Dig that up. That was yeah. a blast. Um. I will just say I think my Pride and Prejudice fan fiction. So mm-hmm. my out there Pride and Prejudice fan fiction. Just look. They share a universe with Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Okay. That's I see that. like just one hundred percent I'm just gonna go into it and it's gonna happen. Uh but really like if I'm trying for a more like serious, considered, like tonally consistent with the original work, 
Uh, it is a fan fiction sort of covering some of the stuff brought up in the epilogue. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. The complicated family dynamics, I think. There's an interesting tension that would form across the years between Lizzie and Jane as they attempt to figure out what is the best way to relate to, uh, you know, how large a role do they want their parents to play yeah. in, like, you know, their own married lives and their in their the lives of their kids? Uh, how much, like, what do we owe to Lydia and Wickham uh, moving forward? Like, there there are interesting narrative threads there to pick up and do things with uh, that I think would open up some interesting conflicts in different dimensions mm-hmm. uh, or different along different axes. Uh, between some of these characters, I think could be it could be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I would co-write yours. I'm just signing on myself cool. nice. to write yours. I'll co-signed. I'm here to read. Yeah, that's all, all right, the words I have. Peter left. Parker. Peter Parker. Peter B. Parker. Cotto, do yeah. you have a, a choice here? Do you have a thought? No. Cotto says, says no. no. Cotto wants out. Cotto, Cotto wants once out. again is about to start tunneling through the wall. What if Doctor Who? What if Doctor Who? Oh, well, we've been down this road. You, yeah, well, we well only yeah. through the Jane Austen, not the Lizzie Bennett. Right. You missed the Emma episode. Oh, okay. The episode. <laughs> that, the anyway. Doctor Who. Who was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's the, so tired. She was the. She was the. Um, she was the Prime Minister briefly in Doctor Who. Wait, what? Right. No, I'm talking about the person who plays Lydia. Oh, I'm talking about that's that's, that's uh, Claire. Um, Claire? Which uh, one's Claire? Well, Julia Sawal. Which Lydia? Uh, the one that we just watched in the trailer. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm talking about Harriet okay. Jones. Harriet Jones was in that. Harriet Jones was oh. the prime minister who, oh, yeah. uh, there's that great fucking yeah. bit where um, the doctor decides to like destroy her life by leading, by like ask, by telling someone, don't you look, she, don't you think she looks tired? And that's like the first, like that, she fucks over some people basically yeah. and the doctor who it, this this in, this version of the doctor is like I mean all versions of the doctor are secretly assholes like that's the doctor who is struck this sounds like a Capaldi who it's pre-Capaldi no 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 it's, a, it's David really? Tennant who is who is my favorite doctor eh, anyway I don't like Doctor Who that much but I still have like bits yeah. that are that really Wait, work with Harriet me Jones in one of the others yeah she existed from the Eccleston forward no, no, no. I mean, through. I mean, I mean, in one of the other Pride and Prejudices. You mean that 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 person who played her? Harriet, Harriet Jones is the is the yeah, character yeah, yeah. played Harriet by Penelope Wilton. Probably. I mean, she's a British actress who's been. Yes, she was the. She was. She's Mrs. Gardner yeah. in the 2005. There we go. So, and then in Death Comes to Pemberley, she's not listed. And maybe I was. Maybe it wasn't her who I saw. It looked, like her. It no, looked I, so much like yeah. her. Maybe it's just not on her Wikipedia. Maybe she's like, no, say it was Elaine Smithy. (laughs) (laughs) That looked just like her and it is not her? I feel like a fool now. Oh, no. Damn. Well, anyway, (laughs) that is where we leave Pride and Prejudice. And for now, the subject of Jane Austen's work and adaptations of it, uh, you know, for my part, I think I have to admit here that this, like, as you can tell, as we cross like hour thirty-five or whatever of this podcast series, <laughs> uh, this is one of my favorite things to talk about, and I was really happy to talk about it with 
like my favorite people. Uh, this is a thank you. You know, th- there are a lot of days where a job, even a very good one, is not a dream job. No. Like you know, you're not you're not sitting there every minute of the day being like, I can't believe that like I was allowed to like charge for this and like be compensated for this time. Uh, being able to do something like this and just deep dive on this with y'all um, truly is kind of dream job territory. Uh, so yeah, my thanks to uh, Ms. Austin. And to Papa Bear Austin. Hi. And that's Natalie and Danielle and Kato for indulging this uh, ridiculous endeavor. Thank you so much for hosting. Extremely it. fun. This was a blast. Uh, Sorry, I'm falling will, into this hole with Penelope Wilton, whether or not she's in Death Comes Don't worry about it. Stop it. You know, she's, it's fine. She's that, announced to be in it, but then he's not listed anywhere. It's what, like, I don't know if she got cut or what. Austin, it's Sorry. okay. Let it go. Okay. It's okay. Cut for time. Okay. Which is not something that ever happens on our podcasts. Uh, <laughs> that will conclude this series of Be Good and Rewatch It. Uh, music is by Too Mellow, who's working and find at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can also find Too Mellow at, on Twitter at MellowMakes. You can keep up with everything we do at Waypoint at waypoint.vice.com and follow us on Twitter at Waypoint. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Austin, where can people find you? At Austin underscore Walker. Natalie. At Natalie Watson. And you can find Kato at A underscore Kato underscore appears on Twitter. Uh, if you have somehow only listened to Be Good and Rewatch It, be sure and check out our other podcast feed, Waypoint Radio, to hear us talk about video games and other cultural or political topics. And as always, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice and let the world know about these five-star podcasts with five-star runtime. We'll be back next week with a look at Jordan Peele's Us, and I suspect spoilers will be part of the discussion. Uh, We may not go completely... No, it's to be good and rewatch it. You have to, yeah. Yeah, so spoilers are going to happen. We're we're all up on the text here. That's the the point of this. So uh, when we talk about Us, spoilers will be active. Uh, so fair warning there. You can also hear us dig into the sordid saga of Aaron Rodgers' divisive role within the Green Bay Packers and uh, hear and hear Austin discuss Kofi Kingston's recent crowning as WWE champion and that story's complicated relationship to the league's often disgraceful racist past. That will have been uh, last we week's also, episode. Oh, because we're dividing this in two. Yeah. Well, then it'll be live, which will be great. Yeah. Go listen to it. That's true. It's very, it's very uh, interesting, interested in, interesting and complicated. I need to eat yeah. food. We also just wrapped up our lore reasons run on Kingdom Hearts franchise, which is like this series, but about Kingdom Hearts. Uh, and later, and uh, you know, we'll also be talking more on Waypoint Radio about more video games. You can catch it all on Waypoint Radio and on Be Good and Rewatch It. Until next week, let us not say farewell, but as the French say, au revoir. Ugh. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Oh, I love talking about Pride and Prejudice with you all so much. Yeah, we're almost we're almost done for real. We're it's almost wild. done. We're, these last scenes are going to go quickly, and then we're going to get into the letters. Yeah. Uh, um, and then final thoughts, where I'm likely to get sappy teary. about how much I've enjoyed doing this with yeah. you all. Rob. This is Rob's Kingdom Hearts. This is Rob's Kingdom Hearts. This oh, extremely like I'm like <laughs> lore reasons is a silly endeavor. I would not be part of such a thing. I would instead do an ultra serious and morally uplifted eight part uh, like twelve hour Pride and Prejudice <laughs> podcast God. series. I'm here for it. Um, who is the who is the Donald Duck of Pride and Prejudice, Natalie? Uh ooh. Hmm. Mr. Bennett. Mm. No. Is Lizzie Sora is really the question. Lizzie is... is I think Jane is more of a Sora. Because she just is always seeing the best. Yeah. Is so positive vibes. Yeah. I feel like Lizzie's more of a Riku. Yeah, but then you don't get the Sora-Riku connection. I know. But so, you're right. Sora is neither a Darcy or Is a Riku movie. the same Riku from Final Fantasy? Is different, that different Riku. Riku. Different Riku. Okay. That has two Ks. Yeah. The Final Fantasy okay. has two Ks. Yeah. This one is Riku. just one. Yeah. This is Riku. Riku. Yeah, exactly. Riku. All right. Um, um, that, those are my thoughts. Good. Good thoughts. <laughs> All right. Lizzie's an uh, aqua. Lizzie's what? An aqua. Mm. Out, out in the, you know... Fragmentary passage type shit. Mm-hmm. Out in the dark. Mm-hmm. Trying to fix a bridge. That's all I know about fragmentary Aqua passage. But Aqua has to be saved. Aqua does need to be saved. I mean, everyone in that yeah. game needs to be saved. That's true. So Lizzie doesn't need saving. That's not true. We've been over this. That's my one beef with this book. Is that? She does need saving. Right, from Mr. Everyone, Darcy. Right? Everyone needs a bit of saving. Everybody That's needs a bit of saving. Darcy mm-hmm. needs saving. That's Darcy like a Madonna song. It is. Everyone needs a little bit of saving. Is that uh, all right? Country, that's Madonna. Okay, <laughs> that's her country album coming out. It might be. She heard that old town road yeah. and she was like, "I oh. have to get in on this. This is my fake British accent. I'm Madonna. <laughs> I'm Madonna. It's me, Madonna, Governor. <laughs> governor. Oi, Governor. I'm Madonna. <laughs> Mind if I uh. see Rosings? <laughs> <laughs> you still want to do this podcast, Rob, with us? Because this is, we could be this instead. We could yeah, this. no, let's 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 what get back that, to it. What was it that Lizzie said? Uh, uh, like, oi, <laughs> oi, that's what she said. <laughs> uh, Lady Catherine. Uh, uh, I've already lost. Oh, a I bit. hadn't known you a month before uh, I knew you were the last <laughs> man I could prevail upon to be married. Uh, Rob Zachney, you shall Guy you shall Richie's. soon you shall soon cease to regret us at all. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, Guy uh, Richie's pride and prejudice. Fuck. All right. <laughs>